I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We're speaking to Alan today. His encounter happened in 2004. Okay. We're talking to Alan today and uh, he's got a pretty interesting situation that happened to him. Alan, how are you? I'm doing all right, Mr. Jevening. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I know we had some issues last time we uh, tried doing this. My microphone wasn't working properly, so I'm blaming on being new and not really paying attention to what I was reading. So... <laughs> <laughs> Guilty too. So let's. I guess we uh, we can start out by just asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself, and uh, and then we'll move on from there if that's okay. Okay. Well, I live here in Georgia, uh, originally from South Carolina. Um, been here three years, and uh, the subject of uh, Bigfoot. My dad used to watch in search of, so I was kind of like familiar with the name. Wasn't nothing you know new, and. Uh, everything so he had books laying around about bigfoot you know love star trek so he left a little legacy for me behind so i'm really i really can't say i'm a stranger to the creature itself you know dad you know like that and everything and uh but when you do lay eyes on one it kind of does change your way of thinking you know now now let me ask you first i know in the southern part of the country uh, a lot of folks are are actually quite familiar with these things. They call them boogers and, and a couple other names, but uh, it's not something that's talked about to outsiders too much. Is that right? That's correct, sir. Yes, sir. That is correct. Um, I've talked to some people around here. Uh, I think it was you I discussed it with. You don't go up knocking on doors with cameras and lights and confetti and all, you know, around here. Yeah, it's you... probably not the best thing, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't recommend that. Um Unless you feel like taking a trip to the hospital. But no, I, uh, I I talked to some people around here, and when they saw I was sincere, they kind of opened up, even an older now, generation. Now, let me ask you, too. Um, not talking to people about it, is that something... I mean, obviously, you don't talk to strangers and stuff and, and people outside the local community, but is it is it because of uh, a stigma attached to the subject, or... Are there other reasons? I mean, was it, as growing up as a kid, were you told not to talk about the subject, or how would you describe that? Actually, I think it's uh, all of the above. You know, the ridicule, the, stig- the stigma that comes along with it, uh, people in places and positions and jobs, for those who are skeptics or debunkers, and uh, it's just something you have to carry around, and it gets heavier by... I don't know, every heartbeat, if you will, every breath, you know, when you just can't open up because of the fact that um, you're going to always have that one skeptic, that one debunker, no matter where you go. 
Right, right. Yeah, there's <clears throat> up and up until even present day, there's been a lot of stigma attached to the topic. Um, I, I just know that there's I've had, had a lot of friends from the South who, who say the same thing. And a couple of them now, uh, especially our one of our team leaders in uh, Florida, uh, who goes out and works also in Alabama and Georgia, talked to a lot of locals, uh, has gotten people to open up to him. And I, I think it helps, you know, a fellow Southerner talking about this than somebody, say, you know, from, from other parts of the country. Right. Being in the same uh, territory, you know, and everything, say, hey, I notice, you know, this landscape as well as you do, but, you know, here's what I'm after, here's what I'm looking for. And they get right. comfortable with that, and okay, guy, you know, pretty much... They'll open up. So now, your incident, how long ago did that take place? Mine was October 7, 2015, between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. So it was pretty recent. Yes, sir. Okay, well, tell me that particular day, what were you doing, and uh, and sort of walk me into what happened. Okay. Um, Meanwhile, you know, was here at the house and uh, had to run down to Morvin, which is west of me, about five, six miles down the road. So I had to go to the store. And it was a beautiful day like it is now. Blue sky, just, you know, windows down, radio type, beautiful weather. So I decided to take the long way back. And the highway is known as the Equipment Highway from Morvin. And uh, if anybody from Georgia is listening. But, um took the long way back and when you get about a mile or so out of uh morvin you go you come up on this little hill or what i call a hill and then when you go to go over you can see the road straight down in front of you about a mile and the weather was just perfect i meant and i was you know like i said into the you know radio on just 45 miles an hour and when you travel a road so long you know what's going to be where on that part of the road so I happened to look down about 200 yards in front of me, and I noticed something there. But, you know, at the moment, I wasn't really, that wasn't on my mind. But then all of a sudden, this thing did an about face, and it took three steps across the two-lane highway. And I'm figuring that had to be at least a five-foot gap because I could count every time it picked its, each foot up. And I counted three to four step. It was off the asphalt. It was gone. It was gone. It was a bright, um, I don't know, bright reddish brown, like an orangutan. And it had patty type arms. And uh, it wasn't barrel chested like some say built like a King Kong. This had more of a runner's build, Mm -hmm. if you will. But I'm guesstimating it to be, at least from where I was at now, at least seven and a half, eight foot tall to have counted the steps like that. You know the the gap. Was there any was there anything close that it walked by that you could gauge the uh, height? From? Uh, well, you know, as you go to go across the little swamp, you'll see the li- the the tall like oblong sign with the little stripes going down when you go to go over a little bridge. This stood right. about, and it was behind it, but I seen the movement, and it was as tall as that, maybe a hair bit taller. But at least that, that's the closest thing I can say I can compare it to. And and you mentioned uh, it had uh, Patty Type's arm. Patty Type's arm, so um, <laughs> let me get that again. Patty Type arm. Yeah, really. So three times fast. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so everyone knows we're referring to the Patterson Sasquatch. 
Um, overall description, you think it looked quite a bit like the Patterson Sasquatch, or, uh, or was it different? It was either. I'm a, I'm just gonna say I don't, I don't believe it was quite the size as far as the roundness, you know, the big the, the bigness of it, and maybe even as Patty could have been. But like I said, it was 200 yards in front of me, and I do know it didn't have the long arms, and it was a bright reddish brown. But I could certainly count each time it picked up a foot and walked. So that's like a five foot gap. I'm six one. It takes me six to eight steps on a two lane road. This thing took three steps and it was off the road. Yeah, and that's something that's that's a fairly consistent measurement. I mean you can see the center line of the road and you can tell, you know, where something places its feet, you know, in conjunction from moving from one side to the next. So you, you get a pretty good idea of the spacing and um, yeah, that's that's yes, a sir. good thing to have Definitely. as a reference definite but um it will it will change the way you think um it's one thing to be to know they exist to, to, to be a believer but when you look at one it's like you realize how little you know of this thing you just saw that really ain't supposed to be but you see a flesh and blood and uh it will it will quickly offset anything you thought you knew about them at least for me it did yeah, it definitely changes your because you don't really have a frame of reference. I mean, unless you've actually yes. experienced this and seen one, um, you know, when you see something, you can you can read books or, or um, you know see things on television, but it still doesn't prepare you for actually having this direct encounter. Uh, and that's that's how we term that. It's either I know there's been a lot of people that try to classify sightings and encounters, but uh, I find the easiest way is the simplest way. Uh, by you know recording things as either a direct encounter or a peripheral direct being if you actually saw one or one or more of these creatures right. and then a peripheral is everything else uh, without a direct sighting so very interesting uh and you say that and the duration wasn't very long and the coloring was yes sir, it was size color, right? bright reddish slash brown color it, it definitely stood out i mean behind the sign i could see movement this is small you know, about a three, four inch, the sign's that wide. And, uh, you know, with the little black stripe, when you go to go over a small little bridge over a, yeah. And it was right behind there. Mm -hmm. And I seen the movement, but, you know, just thinking nothing about it. My mind wasn't on it at the moment. But then when I seen it turn about face and it took the three steps, um, I don't know if this makes sense, but for me, I, my words, it, time itself i wasn't even at that moment even in this time i was just i don't there's no words for it um you have to see one to literally know you know what i'm saying mr Jody? well yeah time is kind of subjective in a way you know we we don't look we sort of look at it in a linear fashion but if you think about it you know, depending on, on whatever activity it is you're involved in, you know, let's say, you know, an eight-hour workday seems to drag by and, and, and you feels like 20 hours when if you're doing something that you enjoy or is interesting or, or, or I should say just captures your attention, uh, the same time frame, let's say the same hour, eight-hour time frame. Yes, sir. Seem like, it, uh, five minutes. like I said, I, I don't want to say use the term I lost track of time, but I lost track of time for that moment. Three steps, it was gone, but yeah, it was like slow motion, but, you know, and it wasn't in a rush from my 
point from my my own wording it it just kind of strutted across mm-hmm. now it was aware it of had to have been uh life. mr jevney because when i come up over the hill i i kind of wondered about you know how could that have heard me that far away but then again 200 yards really ain't that far true it's it's far enough where you don't get a lot of fine detail but on the other hand it's close enough where uh, you can see interactions right. yes, sir. It, um, things like that. Like I said, I definitely saw when it did the about face and it, you know, and when it took its leg is, you know, people talk about structure of the, their body, like a human, how, how we walk. This thing right. was like, I told you, it was like the corner of a square you draw on a, on a piece of paper. It went straight out and straight down. Mm-hmm. Kind of like yeah, a person with snowshoes. something in that in that fashion, exactly. It's just, but you know, the five foot gap, you know that. Right. Correct. And it, and it, it just never like glided. Snow, it was right? just like what I call strutting across. It wasn't in no rush. I could tell it wasn't like you know speeding or. It just it just took its time, sure. and uh, it never once even looked at me. I mean, you'd think it would at least glance at you, and. Um, I've talked to uh, one gentleman, and he he told me, he said, it definitely knew he was coming, or, you know, if there was anybody there, else there on that road, it wouldn't have probably even been standing there. So, I figure of all the times, why well, couldn't right, have, right. there have at least been another car to witness? But I know what I saw. Yes, sir, it's pretty much, That's you know, you got cars, you know, road, just, you just average road, two-lane road, and... But at that moment, there wasn't a car behind me, a car coming towards me. It was just me, you know. Did you ever have a sense of uh, any kind of? From what I gathered, it was was standing there like it was looking back from where it come from, you know. And the reason I say that is because it had to do a complete, what do you call, three sixty, you know, looking for. It was standing there as though we're looking Mm -hmm. from where it, it had just come from and then i guess it heard me and did the about face and it took its uh three steps across and then it was gone that's interesting almost as if there were more there and uh yeah and this is just a an opinion or, or a you know a possibility yes, sir. there's lots of possibilities without actually knowing what happened of course you know, we we can we can hypothesize all day long, but um, you know, I <clears throat> I always use the example with the Patterson film. That's you know seems to be the popular one since it's the only real film that we have of one of these things. Uh, I I used to ask some of the original people, <clears throat> excuse me, in the subject about um, you know why the creature would have chosen to go to the right, and when you look in the films, it's going from left to right across a, a large open area in front of two men who were potential threats instead of turning the other way and disappearing into the brush very quickly there had to be a reason for that and and i used to wonder uh if there wasn't you know possibly a young one nearby and it was drawing uh the humans potential threats in another direction uh sorry in your situation kind of makes me think that also you know why these things never really do anything without right uh, a survival related mode in terms of food or, or whatever else. So I have to wonder, you know, knowing that a vehicle, you know, is, is a human, um, and again, that potential threat, would it be yes, sir. going across the road? Because it was looking back and obviously heard the vehicle, t- 
turned about and went the opposite direction. I mean, and again, it's just, you know, we're just sort of spitballing here, but uh, I have to wonder why it did that. Why didn't it just go back in the brush where it came if it was concerned about a vehicle instead of going the other direction across the road, almost as if it was leading. You're not the first one that's told me that, uh, Mr. Jeveny, and I've been pondering on that. Um, one person uh, I was talking to, they said there possibly could have been others It could have been waiting on or just, you know, looking at something. And I found out, uh, me and my brother-in-law were riding, and I said, when we went right by it, I said, this is the exact spot where it crossed, to the right. Well, he said, back off in them woods are sheep. I never knew that. I never knew that. I didn't know sheep were back there. Oh, there you go. he told me. So. Do you know if anybody's had any unusual um, amounts in terms of quantity? No, sir, I haven't heard any, any, uh, any you know, reports or any talk. But then again, people, uh, if they're, they're not sure, they're not going to open up because they're scared of, like, right. Yeah, and it might not be something they'd report anyway. You know, I, I know from growing up on a farm, if, you know, if animals disappeared, we'd wonder about it and look, but... You know, with other wildlife right, around, exactly. you know, but, that um, does happen. It's so far, I haven't heard of nothing. But then again, there's a lot of tight, you know, zipped uh, lips around here, you know, around the south. And yeah, it's probably not a community. Exactly. If, if they, there has been, well, I heard you say one time when I believe you was doing a thing or you was interviewed that you said that you had met, you know, hunters. Now, if anybody to have any experience, I would think it would be them because they're out in the woods. And you said, yeah, you said something to the effect of yeah, I, when I won over their confidence and their trust, then they begin to open up. Yeah, that I had a particular incident happen back in, I think it was 1987 or 88, where my girlfriend and, and the children were up playing in the snow and of course i we'd seen tracks up there a couple of times so i wanted to go up there and, and look around a little more so we had sort of a a multiple reason for going into that place and there was another couple there with their children nearby yes sir. and i had my camera around my neck and i was walking around while they were playing in the snow and he the gentleman walked over to me and he says <laughs> oh are you, are you getting any good shots and i kind of grinned and i said well i hope so and then i just told him what i was doing and he starts telling me this account. You know, he'd, he'd been a deer and elk hunter in that area for many, many years. And uh, he said, you know, and, and I, this was around the time, it must have been 1988 because it was shortly after I had my second sighting. Right. We saw a large gray Sasquatch not far from that area, um, just down, down out of the snow area. And I, I related to him what I had seen. And he says, you know, 17 years ago, I was with a hunting party and we were up in this very same area and one night we were all around the fire and there was a group of us and he said we heard this noise and here come this this enormous gray creature it walked up to the edge of the firelight and we were all standing there just stunned uh, that it was so close it was only about 20 feet or so 20 or 30 feet away and he hmm. said it just stood there and looked at the group and then finally it just turned around and walked away and his wife walked up about that time and she heard us heard what he was saying and she says you've never told me that and so, you know, it's interesting that, that uh, you know, talking to someone with a similar experience or seeing one of these creatures also uh, will have sort of that instant rapport and talk about it where uh, he didn't even... No, I was talking with um, one, gen uh, one gentleman years. after my wife feels like she had a nighttime about 100 feet from here's the stop sign 
to get not on the road I was on, but to go to Morbin. And she went to make the left, and right across the street is nothing but woods, okay? And she saw a figure when she glanced to the left and to the right, she she saw mm-hmm. a figure with like it looked like it's with somebody with a hoodie on, a big person. And she and uh she looked back to the left again. It didn't dawn on her. The moment she, when she looked back, this thing was already on our side, like crouched in a re- ready to jump into a, a ditch type position. And you know when you're there doing mm-hmm. road construction right here, and they're fixing the broad, broaden up the road, and they got that little trailer, and they got a streetlight there across the road, and about a hundred feet to the right down here, you can see, you know, real well, and it made the silhouette. I go to a gentleman. A gentleman, out of curiosity, um, go to Southside and make a left about 100 yards on the right. And I I went over there, and I was talking to him. And number one, you got to be very careful how you approach about the subject. You know how they're going to react. And him being an older gentleman, I thought, oh, man, he's going to blow me away. I just, I knew it. I already had my insurance policy. No. Uh, (laughs) You know. But uh, anyway, I was talking to him, and I kind of eased in there. I said, well, sir, my, you know, the wife had a sighting of something. And the first thing, hit. now here's the way a lot of people think, bear. I said, no, sir, bears don't have human fingers. And the light went right through the fingers. And uh, mm-hmm. then he said something about calling, you know, the Bigfoot crew. And I'm like, no, that's the last thing we need here. My God, this is enough going on. We don't need that. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. We're talking about the group on um, television. Anyway, right? no disrespect. <laughs> I glad I didn't have nothing in my mouth to drink. That kind of choked um, me up. Anyway, too, I, I you know I said no, sir. But I said you know well I appreciate your time and he had a, he has a big beautiful garden in the back of his house and back behind the garden is like I said the woods and he uh. I went to leave, and he said, wait a minute. He stopped me. Mm-hmm. And he said, matter of fact, two nights ago, I had all of my tomatoes were gone. And that's the same night the wife saw what she saw. And he said, he said uh, I've always had trouble with animals eating everything but never touching the tomatoes. He said, two nights ago, all of my tomatoes were gone, and nothing mm-hmm. else was touched. And now I'm kind of wondering if I can put them two together between where he lives and maybe what the wife saw, you know, was it that same thing? Well, it's interesting. I mean, especially with the context of the situation. Uh, and that's and that's one thing we have to do sometimes uh, because sometimes, well, all the time, actually, with these encounters, something people don't really understand is with with a Sasquatch encounter, whether it's, you know, a direct or a peripheral situation, right. these are only snapshots of the overall th- situations going on in an area. So, you know, while your wife saw one thing, this gentleman had something else happen, but they were close both in time and proximity. So, um, you know, without having direct information or seeing what happened, you know, you can only speculate. Exactly. But, now there's you know, a, again, like you say, what else could have taken him? Exactly. Usually it's, it's, it's the other way around. But that night he and said all the maids were gone and nothing else was touched. Now I have a next door neighbor, and I don't know if I told you this or not. Um, went down to Morven to, you know, the store and uh, her two boys, good Christian family, I respect them, and uh, 
boys uh, that took two took the boys teenagers with me and uh i we have to go through some woods of course to go through more and there's one some woods that i'm real curious about i don't know why and i uh i asked him i said you mind if i stop and look sure you know no problem so i got out and was standing there looking okay i didn't see nothing but i just and we come back to the house they go back about an hour or two later the mom comes over and said um my son told me about y'all stopping down there in the woods i said okay I said, yeah, I was looking around. She said, no, that ain't why I'm here. She said, he told me there was something way back in the woods he saw moving around, crouched down like a person watching you. I said, watching me? She said, yeah. I said, he didn't tell me nothing. He didn't say a word to me about it. Maybe you know how I would react. So anyway, I said, do you mind if I go over there with you? And sure, we walked over there and brought him out. And I said, you know, can you tell me what? He said, man, he said, there was something crouched down watching you. As you stood there looking into the woods, it was back. I looked right at it. I said, you sure it wasn't like maybe a black burnt stump? He said, no, because stumps don't have shoulders and no rock back and forth. And don't look like a person crouched down. There was something crouched down watching you. The next door neighbor's, you know, son. And I'm like, okay. And uh, had a friend of mine uh, take me to the Coochie River. Now, everybody's, I'm sure, familiar with the Okie Finoki. Here in Georgia, where a lot of sightings are worse, but this guy took me out, and I did a bobo-type yell, and there's an embankment off to our right, mm-hmm. about 15, 20 feet, 20 feet high. As soon as I did a yell, something scurried across. I mean, I, it could have been anything there. I don't know. We go off further into the woods, and he uh, he did a Cliff Barrickman yell. I mean, he hit the high pitch. He did, there was the freshest branch snap that I had heard and you could tell when an old branch is, is broken but you could tell when a new one gets broken there is a difference in sound there this was fresh and crisp about 20 feet in front of us and we just looked at each other and so we walked on he got deeper to the point he said well man I gotta make stuff cause I don't even know where I'm at we went back there and I said, do another one way further ahead. He did another high pitch, another fresh branch snap. I mean, just crystal clear as you want to be for a branch. I said, do we need to go? No gun, no nothing. Just me and him back there. I said, we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. I wasn't saying out of fear. I was just using common sense. We need to go. And we went to get on this trail, uh, Mr. Jevening, and I happened to look up, and there's a stick, pretty good size, sure. about four foot wide or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's two trees on either side of the trail right where we're going to start. The one on the left had a Y shape at the top, and the one on the right was just straight up, and it had a very small twig on it. The biggest end of that stick was placed on that little twig. The smaller end was placed between the Y. I'm one. I couldn't reach it on my tiptoes. And uh, so I, you know, just I had my suspicions. And uh, as a matter of fact, the other night, this is brand new here. The other night, right across the road, I took the garbage out by the, by the road mm-hmm. and uh, come and sat down on the front porch. I heard this slow, like, I can't whistle like that, but it was like that. But yet it was like a, high, a woman's a high-pitched vocal along, mixed in with that mm-hmm. low Heavy shrill. Yeah, it was like a shrill, but it was like a high, a woman's, high, you know, a high pitch, With but not loud. loud. But what I heard, 
it was a cross between I don't want to put it a low heavy shrill mm-hmm. and a high pitched woman's vocal all at once put them in together and it was a high pitch like but with a heavy shrill but not loud and I heard it as it faded off and I thought well that's unusual I've heard barred owls barred mm-hmm. owls don't really whistle that well and that deep and uh, I know they do they can get up there with you know their their vocals and all but this was different sure. this was just that's the only it was different a low heavy shrill with a say a high pitched vocal but not loud it was all at once you know among uh, many native american tribes whistling was uh, most often how these things were depicted at making yes, noises you know in the northwest uh, a lot of the ceremonial masks have pursed whistling lips <clears throat> excuse me and and that's the uh, that's usually the signature for you know, the wild man of the woods or wild woman of the woods that they called them. Um, so that's that's very common. It's, you know, the screaming and stuff wasn't so much until later, but that was how, how most often the natives portrayed these things. Right. And, uh, you know, going back to now screaming, now person screaming is something that, you know, people in the audience should understand. Uh, what those guys do in that TV show is actually kind of silly because, you know, banging on trees and screaming right. has never really elicited responses from sasquatches it's something i know and i understand people who are kind of new to the subject uh might want to try and things but exactly um when sasquatches communicate it's between themselves it's never never an interaction with people so um and that's something that we we found both my my inside contacts and and exactly um now if you're doing things to alert them to your presence which usually you don't have to they're they're pretty much aware anyway um, when you hear things, it's, it's whatever, you know, and, and again, it depends on individuals, age, their disposition, lots of factors, how they're going to respond, but they are going to spawn, respond between each other about your presence, not necessarily interacting. And, um, so it's, it's very interesting. And, and one of the things that I picked out that you said about, uh, the gentleman said that he saw the creature rocking. He, back he and didn't forth. specify that, now, so I'm imagining, you know, maybe it was just maybe kind of leaning to and fro, like squashed down, kind of you know, like just hunkered down. I never saw it, but now he's him in a car, and I take his word, you know, because they're straight up, they're they're good, they're good boys, and he yeah. uh, he wouldn't say nothing to me. I guess he didn't know if I. So he told his mom, and you know, he didn't specify, but he said this thing. Sure was just like crouched down watching you as you were standing there looking in the woods. But yet I never saw it. And, and you know, oftentimes <clears throat> my anthropologist friends have told me um, that that, and, and oftentimes people seem swaying side to side, but the rocking motion is uh, usually a sign of agitation in primates, and, and lots of primates do that. <clears throat> in fact, even we do it, I think, subconsciously a lot of times. You know, when we're agitated, you know, people see them shift from one foot to the other, back and forth, or, or do kind of a rocking Ex- motion. Exactly. I s- uh, usually wild primates do it, you know, more often than we do, but I think it can be seen even with people. But it, but it's definitely a sign of agitation. So, you know, people on both, apparently on both sides of this creature, because you guys were That's watching the, it. And exactly, and it's like it. when they're doing and that, sure it's that like, to me, a type they, of warning. They're you know, like, you're getting very uncomfortable, and... 
these things are wild creatures. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen anything about it, but Absolutely. I got up at, at, at 3 o'clock, and I won't specify, but um, I couldn't sleep. You know, I got up and got on a computer. I read this thing of a lady with her kids and these things were around there this morning at her place obviously and they were hitting on i guess you know her trailer and throwing sticks and all and even threw something on the, the roof and i what can you do i mean that this is something that's not even supposed to exist you know and here it is and well Right. Exactly. And, you know, that's not an uncommon behavior. When you, you go back and even look at old stories, you know, like from the 1924 miners' attack at Mount St. Helens, uh, you know, they they shot at one of these things, and then that night these things attacked the cabin, uh, you know, throwing rocks and, and other debris at the cabin and actually reaching in and grabbing an axe at one point and, you know, basically harassing right. a group of miners trying to get into the cabin. And I, I can think of probably half a dozen other accounts just off the top of my head, people I've wit, uh, interviewed over the years uh, who've had very similar kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, uh, yes, sir. Here's, said, here's uh, something her little one was with her on too, her end. Where you mentioned it was a uh, you know a woman where with her the actual and they were small uh, you know the activity was taking place of them going against the the, the trailer or whatever. And the other kids were, I guess, I'm assuming were on the other end, but sleeping, thank God. And, uh, but, uh, all I'm going to say is this. You do not feed these creatures. They are not dogs. They mm -hmm. are not cats. These are wild, bipedal walking creatures. They're a beast. You... And, you know, and, and I'll say that, as, and particularly from people from the South that have told me this before. Right. about not feeding them and it's not so much well i guess the basis is to keep them from coming around on a regular basis and not only that but uh once the feeding is stopped these things have very yes sir that's tempers. exactly um and are kind of i asked and it's, and it's like i believe three times result if uh, i don't know if it was a day stopped. or just three times since she had been there and i said you know i inboxed her and you know i said you don't feed these things they're not humans they're you you just don't do that because then they get dependent on you and if they run out of food or don't have enough they get angry and here in the south they're known to be more aggressive i the wife thinks maybe it could be something to do with the climate maybe they don't have as much room as like angry. the ones in up northwest the rome Right. Well, and there's also also the uh, the second of four and possibly even five different varieties of these things. And that's something most people don't understand, that there's actually, you exactly. know, what you see in the Patterson film from 1967, everybody thinks Bigfoot, well, that's what it is. Well, there are actually four and even possibly a fifth type. And I, I, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but what it seems to be in your part of the country are predominantly the uh, the type 2 what you see in the Patterson film is what we call a type 1 uh, but the type 2s are are very similar in a lot of ways except right. they will walk or or travel as often on four feet as they do their two legs right like we walk and they have very very pronounced yeah the reports that i've heard all from down here it they they weren't too pleasant and a much nastier disposition no sir um 
I hope you don't mind me saying his name, but check out uh, Mr. Mike Woolley. I guess no, I don't know. Heard I, any good, you know, good I encounters in heard his story, and then uh, I talked with a gentleman from Mississippi. Uh, I ain't talked to him in a while now, but he uh, he's right, had right. two encounters in the same area, and he said around Mississippi, they're sighted here all the time. People just don't open up, and that takes us right back to where we had started about having to win, you know, trust and everything, because they their their lips are sealed. He said, we see them all the time. And, and I think, yeah, and I think a lot of that goes to uh, the kinds of encounters, you know, especially them being a little more. And that's really, to me, sad. I mean, you know, in a way you can uh, we'll tend to somewhat understand, but talk about that because you have people think they were crazy. Yeah, you. it's like, you know, some people, you have to understand these, they don't believe these things exist. Get skeptics who are well, now totally believers that can tell a skeptic, like now, you know, I was in your shoes until that word until changed everything. Oh, I love it. I, I know one encounter that, you know, of course, many people have seen the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek, the original one, you know, from 1970. And I actually know someone who was involved in making that film. And another gentleman who knows, and now if you remember the part, there was the family, and I can't think of their name offhand, but they were, the women were there, and I think there was a boy there, one of the one of the women's brothers, and uh, this thing had kept coming around their house. Yes. And I think it was a I rental remember. house, they weren't there very long. And when the two men came home, this thing apparently, when the part of the film, they were sitting on the couch and the thing reaches through the window, well... Yes, the sir. actual situation, and this is from this is from a gentleman I know who was friends with the man in that particular account right. that was mauled by the creature, and and I, and I like exactly. I like this one because and I, and I wish the gentleman the gentleman to this day is still not wanting to talk about that situation. It, you know, it, it shook him up so bad, and I really can't blame him because what a, what a horrific thing to happen. What actually, and I mean, of course, they they cleaned it up a little bit and dr- dramatized it for the film which they didn't need to because it was actually scarier, I think, in the actual account. But the actual account went something to the effect of, uh, you know, the creature did reach through the window and they, one of the women or somebody slapped its hand. And when the men went out on the porch to see what happened, they actually went out away from the house, and I think the film shows that. Mm. And they sent, one of the guys went back for a flashlight. And the creature never actually left the porch. It stayed on the porch. They walked past it in the dark. And when the other gentleman went back, um, you know, they talked about it, it mauling him. But they didn't really describe God. what happened. What happened was, you know, the thing grabbed him, threw him down, and used the back of its hands. And basically, like a drum roll, just beat the hell out of the guy. And, uh, you know, he, he they when they come running for, you know, to help him, it took off. But... Uh, that's not unlike you know you see you see films exactly. of how often you see have you seen in a, in a movie or something where a chimp is doing something you know just exactly like that you know like a drum roll you know smacking something or another chimp with the back of its hands so you know yes yeah, sir uh, yeah I think that's the one where the, the doctor even reported and said when he came in yeah, he was pale as a ghost his uh, mind you know was of- bruised pretty well I'm sure by that encounter. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, 
You, we get these accounts. <laughs> well, I guess number one, it, 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 are, they have to rehash um, it in order to tell it, you and, know, and, and a lot of them, they just put like it, try to tuck it away. On and somewhat routine basis. But like people they don't realize maybe it. to actually talk about it, it gets it out instead of holding it in there. Right. Now, in your area, um, has, had you... Or are you aware of well, other, I have, I've been I've looked uh, it up on Google on and it was uh, in that area. I mean, as the, as some the area, I think it was a young being guy I, just a few locals. years ago. Uh, Moultrie's like 25, 30 miles west of us. Go past more than the town where I you know went straight through. And uh, something about he was taking his grandmother or something home from work one night, and he happened to look up when he got in the yard. I guess she lived out in the country or something to do to the effect. This thing just stood up, walked from behind a hay, a bell of hay. And it just, you know, it, it rocked his world big time. And uh, on and off, I, I'm seeing accounts here. It's pretty much, you know, I don't know how recent, um, mm -hmm. except for mine. I haven't really uh, heard much about it. And like like you said, Mr. Jevening, if, if people do, they're not going to say nothing a lot of them because, number one, they're going to scare their peers family friends to tell them you're crazy you know what was you on people just don't want to they don't want to believe it so the person just god forbid they have to carry that with them yeah very true i was scared you were gonna ask me that man um great now would it be safe to so say there's really no had that encounter? No exact word I can use. Um, you you see something that you're supposed to only read in a social studies book in school, not here in 2016. Walking in front of you, flesh and blood. I meant. I always I already knew they existed. They were real, but to actually put it into words when you it's you know you're on the side of believing. And knowing they exist, but to actually lay eyes on one, you cross over that, you know, you're on this, I'm on this side of it. And I tried to make a, a statement out of it. The best way I could put it was like, okay, I had both my parents, of course, here. I was on that side of life. But then when they passed, I'm on this side of it now, you know, without them here. So it's hard to try to tell somebody who's got both parents what it's like to have parents and then have to go through with not having them there's no words I, I kind of find that the same way right oops looks like we lost the call with Alan we were just about done anyway folks so stay tuned for the next segment in Bigfoot history near McBride British Columbia November 1951 prospector from Kitchener told Rene DeHinden he and another man saw fresh barefoot tracks 15 to 16 inches long in two inches of new snow. The maker of the tracks had slept in their lean-to and took part of a goat they had left hanging in a tree. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Milo's going to be joining us a little bit later uh, in this segment. So for the time being, Tom and I'll start off with the questions. What do we got, Tom? All right. And I'm just going to start off with a quick introduction. 
If you like the show, just uh, click the like and subscribe button. It helps the algorithm. Be sure and click the bell so that you get all the new shows. And if you want to support the program, you can do so with Patreon. We've got a link in the description. All right. So Dav wrote us, and he's got a great question. I really like this. He says, hi, Will. Um, he's asking about the bone and muscle density. Uh, you, you've stated that they're much higher than human levels. He says four to five times more dense. And I believe our position is what we've heard is more like 10 to 12 times. Mm -hmm. And the question is, would this higher density prevent the creatures from floating, therefore swimming in water? Would they sink to the bottom? You know, it's interesting. I, I guess we'd have to look at other animal species to make that comparison because I know in humans, uh, higher density causes, you know, less flotation. But then there's also, you know, how much fat and, and things like that on the creature. We do yeah, fat to muscle ratio. Right. We do know Sasquatches are very good swimmers. Um, you know, there are places that I know of where locals tell me they see them routinely swimming, the Columbia River, for example. So it's something they do. So obviously they're not sinking and they're not afraid of the water. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but that's a great question. And uh, these are the sorts of questions actually we just really appreciate because it, it moves the whole topic forward and it keeps us thinking on our toes. So again, Dav, uh, thank you very much. That's an, that's an amazing question. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. We have another really good one, and this comes from Danny. And Danny, I believe, is in Southern California. Um, sounds like he spends time in the Sierras, in the Southern Sierras. And I just think that is absolutely stunningly beautiful country. Apparently, Bigfoot thinks so, too, because there's quite a few of them there. Lots of activity there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so what he wants to know is... Do the creatures, you know, we talked about, you had two or three incidents of animal kills that were definitely done by the creature. One was that deer with the head that was twisted backwards. The other was the, uh, a bear, a black bear that you had found and the snout had been shoved up into the skull cavity. Is that right? Yeah, it was, well, the whole front of the whole front of the face, the skull of the bear was crushed inward. Wow. And, and I'm just not sure how that could happen. I mean, the first one you mentioned was the deer, and I didn't see it, but my friend John did. And it was the last time he used the trail between our houses. Um, he took my dog with him, and, and they went up there, and he said he found a deer with its neck twisted where its head was twisted around. He's like kind of like a corkscrew and part of it was, it was partially eaten and it unnerved him pretty good. So, and he never told me until just this year. <laughs> that was, like, that was thanks, a long time ago. John. <laughs> yeah. Gee, of course I'd quit going up that trail too, because I got growled at up there and I don't know what was growling at me, but it was, it was very unnerving and, and I quit using the trail, but then there was the bear and our family friend, Charlie was the one who found that up near Enumclaw where Milo lives and um, it was it was in a place like I I told Milo once I said it's uh, you know how rural it is out in that part of Enumclaw it's outside of town and there's farms out there so you know there are patches of timber 
it's kind of like where I grew up. In fact, it's not that far from where I grew up, really. But there, there are patches, stands of timber, and then intermixed with pastures. And in one of these tr- stands of trees, uh, he found this skeleton. And it was, oh, I don't know, it was probably laying there at least a year, I'm guessing, because the bones, the bones are all there. They were as exactly where the animal fell. And nothing had gnawed on the bones, moved them, anything. I mean, which is interesting because not even rodents had chewed on the bones. They were they were bleached. Uh, there was still some some of the bear's hair that was there, and I wasn't hundred percent certain what the skeleton was from. So I collected it up. I had taken pictures. I don't have any more, unfortunately, but I had taken pictures, and I took it to the college I was going to, and a friend of mine there uh, had some expertise in identifying skeletal remains of animals. So he told me that it was a bear. But what was interesting, the only damage was that the front part of the face was completely smashed in. It was smashed. I mean, it was pulverized. The, the bone was just fragments. And then, of That's course... really odd. Yeah, and then, of course, we talked about the elk that were killed, but the, the animals were gone. They'd already been collected up, uh, presumably by fish and game, because those were the people who went to Charlie's house and asked him about the strange screams. <laughs> I, I got a kick out of that story, though, really. Uh, that's the one where they, they went in and asked him if... Uh, if he'd heard any strange sounds, and then he's smart enough to, yeah, he's kind of playing along. He, he knew what long. they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. No. What are you guys talking about? And then they yeah. showed him. They showed him the written report, and and it stated, and he said very specifically, there was a part that said uh, that the elk had been dismembered without the use of tools. And what does that mean? That means one thing. You know, the tendons, the the strength it would take to yank that stuff would just be. Oh, incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. It's like, you know, we talked before about the, the Christmas Valley uh, incidents, you know, with the elk hunters there and, and then the pictures they sent, you know, of the elk uh, that the, the the lady's father shot. Yep. And they went there yep. 20 minutes later and found this thing mostly gone. It had been taken apart and all the legs were snapped off. And, and the, the the gentleman in the picture is holding a couple of these yeah, he's legs. holding a leg and that leg looked it was snapped in a very similar fashion to what we see with the tree breaks exactly and i hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it and and i thought wow that's interesting because they're of similar thickness that the trees yeah. that are often broken sometimes they're bigger sometimes they're smaller but often they're about you know two to three inch, well about three inches thick and and coincidentally that's about the size of those elk legs you know, and good luck grabbing either one of those, either a bone or a, or especially a live bone, snapping it or a live tree and giving it a snap. I don't know what the breaking strength is, but it's it's way beyond human. Even the strongest man, even the guy in Scotland that you talk to from time to time, the bodybuilder, mm-hmm. he couldn't do it. No way. Oh, no, no. Not even close. You know, speaking so, speaking of him, there was an interesting point um, you and I had talked about. He he sent me some recent messages because we mentioned this on a previous show, and he says, uh, you know, about the Sasquatch and their minimum caloric intake that they need daily. And the figure I was told was 15,000 is a minimum. And remember, folks, that's a minimum number. Uh, when it comes to that survival calculation, you got to take in more calories than you expend in order to survive. So... Uh, we don't know what the upper ends are. Of course, it depends on the size of the creature. 
you know, the age, all those different factors, right? So I'm sure the number is much higher than 15,000, but the minimum, that's what I was told was the minimum number is 15,000. And so he was, in, you know, sending me all these messages telling me that um, about a couple of friends, in fact, one of me sent me a picture of him and a couple of his buddies. And one guy um, is, I think he's around six foot six in height and he weighs around 500 pounds. And of course he, he's just big. He doesn't work out or anything, but he's just big. And he says he needs just to maintain his normal everyday existence. He needs around 21,000 calories. And that's an incredible amount. Another friend of his is in competition. Um, and I, Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's, I don't know if he's a bodybuilder or, or he used a term. I, I can't remember what the term was. I'd have to go back and listen to his messages. But uh, this guy is around six foot nine, very, very big guy. And I think he said he takes upwards of around, oh, geez, I can't think of the figure. It's it's a, an un, un, unimaginable amount of calories this guy eats. And he was telling me how much he had to go pick up meat for him one time. <laughs> and he, he was just awed by how much stuff he had to bring for this guy. But it was, it was, it was more than the 21,000 calories the other guy needs, obviously. But uh, so when we, we think about a Sasquatch and what the needs they have, and then the other part of that equation is, and I've heard this debated quite a few times in the past, where people say there there isn't enough food availability in North America to sustain a creature this size, let alone a population of them, and that's complete nonsense. There's you know tons for them to eat. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you did the calculations. You're gonna. I hope it's okay for me to mention it. You're gonna publish a book that's going to talk about. That's going to be one of the part, questions that you're going to part address. of that's in there. Yeah, I'm, it's in the in the beginning of that book. Yeah, yeah. So they have, and here's the other thing. I don't know for a fact. This is just um, I'm not even theorizing. I'm just hypothesizing that maybe what part of their strategy is that they don't wander around the woods uh, like you would, you know, like you might see with the deer or elk or any other animal. I think they conserve their calories and they're very efficient at expending it when they need to to get food yeah absolutely. it's just an idea i don't know absolutely um yeah i was just looking at my manuscript i didn't i didn't i was going to change that section after he sent me that information i only put a little bit of it in there but um when you look at silverback gorillas, for example, the silverback gorilla, the big ones, they, they need about 8,000 calories a day. So, and the Sasquatch is much larger than that. So, um, okay. So, yeah, okay, let's get back to what you're saying. Um, yeah, they're not just, and, and here's the old school way of thinking about this subject. And this goes back to, to Hinden and Green and those original people, Grover Krantz, all them guys were, they were under the assumption that these were just a you know some animal bumbling around out there you know solitary creature on and on and on and some of the people today who consider themselves the experts on the subject and and go out and promote themselves as such are still under that old way of thinking and the sasquatch absolutely is not some dumb animal that goes bumbling around the forest they're an apex predator they conserve their energy because they need to often. They're always looking for something to eat. 
Uh, and when they do, you know, they, uh, they're an ambush predator. So they're, they're going to conserve their energy until they need it. And then they're going to consume more calories. And, and calories, as Bruce rightly pointed out, you know, a calorie is energy. It's a unit of energy. So they need to take in more energy than they use. So that's the reason for those things. You know, here's another thing, because <clears throat> I've heard you mention that years ago, and I got thinking about it. Every time you see a Sasquatch, what's it doing? Oh, it's looking for food. 98% chance it's looking for food. But what is a deer doing when you see that it's looking for food? How about an elk? How about a moose? How about a bear, mountain lion? Any animal that you see in the wilderness is looking for food. And I would say, and if, if there's any biologists out there that, you know, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you if this isn't right. We'd love to hear from you anyway. If you see an insect, it's looking for food. When you see plants, they are in the process of photosynthesizing and mm -hmm. looking for food. Everything out there is looking for food. Right. Everything. And I have spoken to another, a number of Native American contacts since the 80s and the information i get is the same all the time in each one of these instances and i can't remember how many it's been quite a few that the sasquatches are are always hungry and they're always looking for food which isn't a good thing for us <laughs> right yeah well, yeah exactly <laughs> you know uh because we could be on the menu you never know right but, uh, and the other thing is, you know, when you start to analyze and just sort of take a critical look at the encounters, especially the ones that we've encountered, our own, it's quite often you don't have a sense that they're in the area until they give you that sense. It's really interesting to me that uh, my, my very first major encounter with them was they were in an area that I knew that they weren't. They're, they're not around here. We're wasting our time. I didn't say it, but I was thinking it. Mm -hmm. there and <laughs> yes, an hour and a half, two hours later, I was proven wrong. Very much so. Well, you know, a lot of people have preconceived ideas about these things. And like most things, you know, we, when we have a preconceived idea, they turn out to be incorrect. And that's a good point, because if you have a preconceived idea, you may not recognize what you're looking for because it doesn't fit that mold. At least you may not recognize it immediately. You may not recognize, um, you know, like the area that I was at, I didn't see it as being a hot spot. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it really was. Um, one of the questions that we had was, why are the creatures, and this seems kind of rhetorical, but it's still a very good question, is why is it that the creatures are found so often near water sources and especially small creeks? Well, think about where where animals are. You know, small creeks, especially because there's, there's a lot of food around those kind of places and, um, you know, waterways are not just a, a place where a lot of plants grow, different kinds of plants you know, that those animals eat. And of course, the predators are going to be hanging around where these animals are. Exactly. 
And what's interesting is a lot of times the um, yeah I think Renee I think I think you said Renee DeHinden said that they used creeks as waterways as highways you know through the wherever they need to well, go. Yeah, a lot of times. Well, and, and major waterways as well. You know, it's it helps navigate through areas. I mean, they don't. I'm sure they don't commit or have certain routes you know committed to memory they just follow these well they know the waterways and they follow them yeah and they're and think about it the waterways provide not only easier access you know easier traveling through anywhere you know in the wilderness but you got water and you probably have food you're gonna have things looking for a drink of water and that could be a meal yeah absolutely i mean um, yeah, there's there's lots of animals that hang around those tributaries and, and different smaller water sources, natural springs, things like that. And I believe that's why we call the show Creek Devil. It's well, not Ocean Devil. It's well, not. <laughs> that's that's part of it. That was that was some native folks just up here in Northern California. That was there, and I can't remember. It's in our. I think it's on the webpage, but. Um, we've got um it was their name and it translated into in english into creek devil yeah so that's what the native folks up here up north here in northern california called them okay okay and i think i don't know if it was the same native group but wasn't there also mountain devil was another moniker for them i think so i'd have to go back and check it's been a while i mean there's so much stuff that i look into sometimes I don't. I get away from that stuff for a while, then I forget because I'm focused elsewhere. But it looks like Milo's joining us. Um, we're going to be talking about the flyer with him, so I know you are going to be discussing a little bit of that here in just a moment. So um, that'll be an interesting thing to get for Milo and get him started. He knows the technology. There's something you can scan with your phone on it. You want to talk about that a bit, Tom? Yeah, well, the uh, you're talking about the flyer. Yeah, I just actually I've got a uh, a scanner, just a print scanner, and I can scan it. Got an excellent copy, and I can Milo, I can send it to you if you want another one, and you can print them to your heart's content. Actually, okay. just take the digital copy and run down to your print shop, and they'll print them out, and they're pretty cheap. Yeah, that yeah, cool. I'll, I'll figure that out after I get it. <laughs> All right. Um, I do have another question. This is from Sean Okay. in Rochester, New York. Sean wants to know if uh, he says he's a deer hunter here in New York, upstate. And he says about a quarter of the deer, um, there's a lot less deer is what he's saying. There's a whole lot less deer. And he's also noticed that there's... Um, dead deer that he's finding with no signs of hunting wounds or being hit by a car so no no external injuries um he was wondering he said he thought he did some research that they can catch uh that virus that shall remain uh we'll just call it my sharana <laughs> I, I was so just that, thinking it. i wonder if it's disease that's killing him yeah exactly so um and he, he also wanted to know uh, do we think that our creature, Sasquatch, could get the Mycerona 
uh, virus. And uh, we don't know. We have no way of knowing. I wouldn't want them to from the simple fact that it would potentially mutate into something far worse than well, it currently is. They got pretty tough immune systems because of all the stuff that they can eat. But also you have to think, well, okay, where are, where are they in contact with something that might have a virus on it? I sneezed on one. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 well, you're funny. You're so funny. See more of that uh-huh. tomfoolery. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you almost fooled me with that one. Wait a minute. If you're that close to sneeze on one, what are you doing here? What happened to that rule? That rule number. We'll call it rule number two of tomfoolery. <laughs> Leaving. Don't get what they're doing to these. And creatures. I get to leave. You know that. There's times I think right now after knowing you that you're you're full of stuff. <laughs> So, well, yeah, but well, he's an easy target too. <laughs> so what? So Will, on a, on a serious question, uh, we've heard about before about how uh, these like deer get hunted down, and then all of a sudden, when the the hunters get up to the 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 prey, it turns out that they're gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that that might be similar in this situation? To, well, I don't think so because in, in this case with that previous question, he's just finding dead deer. Um, with when, nothing wrong when, with them. I when mean, it happens, nothing visible, no visible right? signs. Yeah, because first yeah. Visible, visible sign of a Sasquatch doing it is oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes where their neck is twisted, you know, where they've been broken that way like a corkscrew kind of. Uh, and I've actually got pictures yeah. of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, The last thing I want to see is my butt. Well, yeah. Tom, you, you want know, to come in? That that goes for all of us, actually. <laughs> hey, that still goes back to rule number two. <laughs> you know, but in all seriousness, though, um, this guy brings up a good point, and that is if you see any kind of d- dead wildlife in the wilderness and there's no uh, obvious injury, then you got to ask yourself what happened if they weren't shot, if they weren't run over by a car and their heads not twisted backwards, are they, um, you know, did they get some sort of disease and you want to stay as far away from that thing as possible? Mm-hmm. Just, just, just saying. Yeah. But human nature, we go pick it up. Speak for yourself. Well, I don't know what this wee stuff is. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't touch dead things. I see dead people, but I don't. I don't touch them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah. So, will do? Do you ever see anybody that have you like interviewed who was just completely stunned? I mean, completely stunned by what they saw. I mean. Like, we're, we're talking, like, shocking, stunned. Oh, yeah, frequently. I, I, I'd say I was stunned. He was. Yeah, I think, I, the, was... I would, Brian, I'd rephrase that question. Have we ever talked to anybody who's had a encounter with one of these things that was not stunned? <laughs> yeah. No, no I'm serious. Did it? I, no, well, I was yeah, I, And I, I have interviewed people like that and then later found out their story was false. 
that was contrived. Yeah. And so that's one of those things. You listen to somebody. Now, when somebody's breaking down in tears as they're telling you the story, which I've had happen numerous times, I'm pretty sure that's authentic. But if somebody's kind of joking around or whatever and telling you their story and the details aren't adding up, then then the red flags start going up. Well, well, let me ask you this. Um, how many times do you think that their stories are authentic versus unauthentic? Oh, the vast majority are authentic. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would say probably 98% of them that but, I, people but, have talked to me are. But how do you, how do you tell by that? Though? Time. I would but, say time. I mean. Time and details. Yeah. Because there's, there, there are stories that, um, you know, there's, there's some out there that a lot of people believe, even to this day, even though I know they're fake, because astrological uh, conditions were not what the person said. Or there were other factors that were involved uh, that panned out to be not true. So, you know, Milo made a good point, time. And that's something Renee DeHinden used to say. He'd say, you know, pay attention to these people over, you know, extended time periods. Albert Osman's story is a good example. And a lot of people still believe that one. But DeHinden was the primary investigator of that situation. He's the first one that interviewed his guy, and he stayed in touch with him for 20 years afterwards. And he said, in the end, his assessment was the old man made the story up. And, and I you know, think he he's struck right. me as kind of a, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those uh, videos with honey badgers, but he really struck me as a kind of an intellectual honey badger. He would get, sink his teeth into something and would not let go until DeHinden? he got an answer. Oh, yeah, no, DeHendon was that way, believe me. If, if he got an interest in something or somebody... He would, he would, you would, he'd sink his teeth in and would not let go until he was satisfied with the answers. And it could be 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Will, that's, that's a great point for like, you know, police officers and forensic officers. That, that's what they do is they, they make sure that they have all the evidence squared upon the, uh, like the detail. And they do such a great job at that. So. You know, I, and Brian, I'm gonna I want to back up for yeah, just a second on like how that. do we authenticate? There was a lady that I watched on YouTube. She's not been on our show, <clears throat> but she, she's a school teacher, and she knew that this is absolutely. She called it the jackalope of the Pacific Northwest. These things don't exist, and she went camping in an area in um, I think it was in Montana and had an experience that absolutely um, shook her up. She had three days of trying to get out of the area where these creatures were following her. And it sounded like it was very similar to our experience where we didn't actually see them, but you you have these things pacing you out of the woods and so anyway that was just a way that uh, it sufficiently turned her around to believe in the creatures exist so that was kind of a different authentic type of an encounter yeah i like that the when when i saw mine it was i because it was mine I, it was my first one so when i saw that it 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 made me a, a believer. 
you know. Yeah, you don't have any choice in that situation. No, you don't. You can't take. You can't give it back. I know. Sometimes I wish I could, but <laughs> uh, that's just the way it is. Well, you know, once it happens, here's a good it happens. Question for you, Will. If if you did not see that when you're the first time to your many other encounters, I so really the my it's a more of a hypothetical question, I guess. Is would you? If you somebody told you about it now, would you believe it? If you weren't, if you did not see one, probably not. I mean, I you know I just wouldn't have been involved in it. Okay. Because to me, you're. I mean, to me, you're the you're the 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 go to guy for this. So I, I would just wondered if if you did not see that. And then have this passion that who you are right now, and somebody say, "Hey, is that a Bigfoot?" And would you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cool. Had I not run into those things, right? You know, when I was sixteen, I would have never been involved in this. My my interest would have been elsewhere. I mean, I was. You remember how much I used to like fishing, right? You know, that that would have been a passion today, but. Um, you know, I kind of, it changed my outlook on being in the outdoors and I just kind of quit hunting. Well, quit hunting because we got shot at, but also being out in the woods. Cause I used to go, you know, my dad and I'd go hunting and then he would go one direction. I'd go another direction cross country and mm-hmm. that's the way we hunted. And even being armed after running into that thing that close, I, you know, it's always been in the back of my mind. There's no way in hell. I'm not going to be exposed out there, especially to a group of them by myself. You know, no, armed yeah. or not, I would I wouldn't do it today. No, I mean, granted, we go to the field, but those are under, you know, we we prepare ourselves and are set up so that we have contingencies and you know ways of defending ourselves. So it's not like that kind of situation being out hunting alone, and uh, it's not the same kind of exposure. We can do field yeah. work, but we we control our circumstances as best possible. So, my I, that leads me to this question: Is I, they they have to ambush, right? To get, would you say they ambush more than like a bear just pouncing in on you? Yeah, I mean they're they're like an ambush. A pack of wolves. They're an ambush predator. Yeah. Here's That's a good cool. example. The guy Gerald that Tom mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. He was a former cop in Southwest Washington, and him and a couple of guys that he knows were up hunting, and they had their tree stand set up at, and I think they were you know 100 yards apart, something like that. So they he got in his, the other guys took off, and they ended up going farther away than what he thought they were. So they weren't they weren't as close as he thought. And he got kind of bored waiting for the elk to move, so he used his call. And then pretty soon these weird sounds started happening in several different directions. And pretty soon five of the creatures come zooming in on him from all directions. Wow. And and he and I had just had a discussion about what to do in a situation like that. And I said, well, the first thing you need to do to fool the creatures is make them believe there are more people around the area than just you. And you do that by talking out loud. You just a number of things like that. Talking like there are other people within earshot. And it throws them off. And he was able to get to his pickup and barely escape. 
So yeah, they that's an example of how they they, they were going to ambush him in that situation. Okay. Man, that, see that's that's the part that you know these. I mean, they've been doing this for you know as long as they've been around, and and we act like well they they can't be as smart as us. Sure, they can. Why not? I know exactly. That's my, you know, it's kind of it's it's like the whole thing on that discovery thing. The whale turned towards Tony and Ramed. That kills me. You Why know, not? one of the one of the biggest problems out there is you know the the old school of thought and the people who call themselves quote unquote experts in the subject, and that's the people everybody wants to go to. That's they have a an archaic way of thinking about the creatures, like there are still some dumb animal just bumbling around out there and they're not that at all they're not no they're an apex predator they're on par with our intelligence and they don't like us so thinking they're a stupid animal just wandering around well makes me wonder who the stupid animal is exactly yeah don't underestimate them that's for sure yeah no kidding don't assume nothing don't assume that you're a human, you're smarter. Right? That's so, what we think. Don't yeah, sneeze that, on them, Milo. What? Don't, no sneezing on them. Yeah, dear. <laughs> I like to see that. <laughs> Go ahead, you do that. Show me. I'm from Missouri. Not really, but hey. <laughs> oh, impress me. <laughs> and yeah, that's what kills me. All these other ones are like tree huggers. Oh, we can just all get along. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think those are very unrealistic ideas. People get a lot of strange things in their minds. It really depends on, again, that frame of reference. And yeah, and like we mentioned before we started recording, I think everybody assumes that everyone is on the same footing psychologically, and and that's simply not true. You know, I remember. So, are we talking? We're, we're talking investigators or are we talking that we think we are superior to these I, I think creatures? both I think both you know when you look and depends on motivations but that's all part of the psychological factor too if you're if you're in that need of attention and some people are and they will just use anything any topic or what have you to get that attention yeah because for me, the whole thing, I, I lost my train of thought, but I, <laughs> which is easy. I don't, I, I have to write my stuff down. But, uh, you know, I, for it, it goes out to the thing when I go to the, I've got a checklist now when I go out. You know what I mean? I mean, for me, it's like. It's a good thing to have. Uh, well, but. When you go out there and and you assume that since you're a human and you got your your technology oriented when you go out to the out in the woods mm-hmm. or I don't wilderness how about the wilderness I'll just call it the wilderness yeah. because there's all kinds of terrain but uh, you, you can't assume that you are superior out there when people other other Creatures, I hate using that word, but so I got. But uh, um, 
and and they've been doing this their whole lives right exactly well especially with these these creatures um you know you're going out into their living room we're coming from an environment that we created around ourselves and right. it's, a, it's an artificial creation and we rely very heavily on it and some people you know and i'll pick on the people that like to crowd into cities are more so than people say are more country oriented um and you know that's that's their reality so when they take their reality out into the creature's living room you know it's it's that outlook of being like you said kind of that superior you know because we we like to be dazzled by by shiny baubles you know which is our own technology and and we think that's more important than something that lives out there 24 7 and that's their life and really they're superior in their environment because of that well it's kind of like how is it we fool ourselves well they can't see me if i hide you're right (laughs) one of one of the key features with the sasquatch and you hear it more and more is they'll sniff the air and you remember from our training in the army you know when you're out a few days you you know our senses become more acute we can hear right. and smell things and see things that you wouldn't in normal everyday Absolutely. settings. You know, twentieth-century man basically stinks. Right. You know? Well, especially people wear cologne, deodorants, laundry detergent, well, and clothes, things eat. like that. It, it's what we eat. I mean, and we, we learned that in Vietnam. Yeah, some people and, reek with certain things they eat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. It, yeah, so I'm the creatures. Sorry. So the creatures may not. They don't have a super great sense of smell. They say like a canine animal would, you know, dogs, coyote, wolves, what have you. Uh, but if something doesn't belong in their environment, you can certainly pick it up. We could smell things like that. Well, yeah, we, you know, say I've been out and well, we've been out to an MTA, say bomb holder or something when I was in Germany, mm-hmm. and we've been out for like a week. Oh well, yeah, when some new guys come out there they're 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 showered Mm -hmm. you can smell the irish spring on them smell all that i mean you know so that's you take that out there it's magnified because wow somebody smokes oh yeah smell that that's a big one forever you know so that comes to play you know don't fool as a non-smoker as a non-smoker i can smell somebody who smokes quite a distance away well, yeah. Plus, you can smell it on their clothes. It's yeah. all over them. They're right. reeking on it. Exactly. So, you know, that, and that's just a that's just a simplistic look at it from from yeah. senses. Plus, we're noisy. I mean, humans are oh, noisy definitely. as hell. Even when we think we're not. Yeah, and it goes back kind of you know to our walking and our you know, our, our feet. Of course, we wear shoes, but even if we weren't wearing shoes, our design of our feet is kind of it's kind of hard. So we make noise when we move. And something like this that has very pliable feet uh, doesn't make as much noise when they move. They can move very stealthily. Well, they are a predator. They are indeed. So, you know, that, that what you want to call that evolution, you know, they, they, they were designed for that. Or yeah, they they're grew much, into that. They're much or better they designed than that. Yeah, they're much better we designed than we are. You know, we walk around in combat boots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, but yeah, 
Uh, and so I, I find that amazing that how we we as humans think we can go out there. Oh yeah, we can do this. Yeah, come for it. Well, we tend, especially today, and I think everybody's told, whether it's you know overtly or covertly, you know through ads or what have you, or movies or whatever, uh, that we are we're so much superior in lots of different ways, and and we aren't. Yeah. Well, go back to the dinosaurs. How long have the dinosaurs been here? Well, you know what when they were here. What made us the top? Um, you know, predatory animal on the planet wasn't so much uh, like it wasn't everybody says, oh, well, it was tools. Tools were part of it, but it's it was our aggressive nature. You know, and yeah. now we're having trouble grappling with it, and we see crime and stuff like that. But because it's still part of us, you know, our, our nature is to be aggressive. You know, I didn't realize that. I thought, I thought I would come to think that it's our reasoning power i you know but i understand that i i think you're well, i think i think the reasoning is part of that it's it's combined yeah. with the aggressiveness it's not just one thing or another but it's a combination but we if because i hmm? oh, go ahead uh, no i was going to say because when in combat i was like my i think my greatest weapon when i you when i was in combat was my imagination right not to think in a box, you know. It was like, what, what would they not think that I would do, and then think like that, you know? But there's also that aggressive part. It's like, you know, right. sometimes your your ruthlessness. You know, they they want to teach and you soldiers as an example. You want to use, and you remember this from from back around 1980. Remember when they were talking about getting rid of the bayonet because yeah. we had all this technology. And my question was. Mike, yeah, they didn't because the question was, and I, I was one of them that asked it. I said, well, what happens when that technology fails? You know, what, you're just going to stand with your hands up? Yeah, yeah, no. You know, uh -huh. so you go, so you got to use that aggressive nature, you know, the hand to gland. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally, I was there, man. I did hand to hand combat for like two days. So, yeah. Hey, right, not fun. I'm surprised I'm here. You know, I I leave. I left, Tom. I leave. <laughs> oh man. Hey, we yeah, got No, go ahead. Go ahead, Milo. I was going to dig on you a little further, but not. I'm going to be nice. All right. Um, but keep that thought. Okay, we got another question here. Um, Will, this is Danny. And Danny wants to know, he said, could you elaborate a little bit on, he did run across a, uh, um, we, when we talked about this one or two episodes back about a, I think it was a cow that he found that had been unscavenged. Yeah. So um, he goes, this might be a little bit obscure for the show, but he goes, I appreciate your take. Have you ever heard of a skeleton, deer, cow, elk, etc., suspected to have been dispatched by a Bigfoot and that skeleton might be seemingly undamaged except for a broken leg, broken neck, that sort of thing. Um, he's asking if you could maybe comment a little, little more on it. Seems like any skeleton would be broken up and the scavengers would come along and and do that. But you actually, you've got two incidents, if you could, that I recall, if you have more, let us know. But one of them was the bear, the smashed yeah, the skull. Right. Tell us a little, tell, we'll kind of bring that in as an answer for Danny's question here. 
Well, I've mentioned it quite a few times, actually, in previous shows, but uh, for those who may not have heard it, uh, our family friend Charlie took me out to a place. He's, he's the one that actually discovered it, and it wasn't far from Enumclaw, where Milo lives. And uh, it, but it was a place, it wasn't out in the wilderness, it was, you know, in a stand of trees, but it was, you know, between farms. So there were, you know, dogs, coyotes, all sorts of animals around the area. Uh, but this bear skeleton, and at first I didn't know what kind of animal it was. I took it to the college I was going to, and, and a friend of mine there identified it. That was his specialty. So, um, but the, the bear had, where it had fallen was untouched the meat was all rotted away there was um um only damage that appeared was the front of the skull the snout was caved into the skull itself the front of the skull was smashed completely oh and and the rest of the animal was untouched and no scavenging whatsoever had taken place wow it was just the bleached bones and some of the hair was all that was there wow and yeah i didn't realize that the snout what can do that i mean that's the, the you know it's not a, not a big long list there of what can cause that kind of damage yeah i mean i, I i'm it kind of narrowed down for me that's for sure yeah i'm going to ask another question and maybe you can answer it maybe not um this was a situation where somebody had found a pile of bones elk bones I believe and they had been the member had been dismembered without the use of tools is that something you're well can talk about or that wasn't okay it, it wasn't bones what had happened was there was some uh, and this was you know again this was Charlie he told me this he you know Charlie I don't know if you remember Milo Charlie didn't have a phone or anything he lived totally no off. he no, I, yeah, he lived off grid, kind of. He did, yeah. He tapped into the local power lines, and, the, and PG&E, or not PG&E, but uh, <laughs> Puget Power could never figure out how he did it. So enter, enter this game official who came to his house and uh, asked if he'd heard any weird screams or any noises that he was unfamiliar with, and he, and he just played dumb, you know, because he, he knew what the guy was referring to. And, he, and, and the guy says, well, he told him no, and, he, and the guy says, well, look, I'm going to show you a report. And it was a report that day by some uh, mushroom pickers. And they, they found two elk carcasses. And the wording in the report, he said, was dismembered without the use of tools. So these elk, car- elk carcasses had been torn apart. Wow. Uh, and an elk is a big animal. Wow. So, uh, you know, and the guy told him, he says, look, if you tell anybody about this, I'll, we'll tell Puget Power where they're electricity's going <laughs> you know? Holy so crap. so you remember and you remember he had to drive he had to drive a ways to find a telephone yeah and and i was at my parents house stationed at fort lewis then and this would have been 1980 and he called and i just happened to be at home right. and he called and i talked to him and he says hey I, I need to talk to you can you come up here so i drove up there and he told me this thing so i i drove up to the location i knew i knew where the place was because we made a lot of the roads up there when i was a teenager in his old power wagon and uh when i went up there i found tracks we found where the elk had been killed i found a, a number of other pieces of evidence up there so i knew exactly and i took pictures of the tracks and sent them to john green and 
he responded, yeah, those are pretty good tracks, and on and on and on. But uh, that was that situation. Well, we had a similar one. Um, this was a lady that her, her she had a dad that was semi-disabled, but he could sort of get around. He's semi-ambulatory, I guess. He shot an elk. Uh, he called oh, her yeah. up, and they go out, and I think they, you know, he shot it. By the time it took for no, her no, to get no. there, they were they were all they were all hunting together. And, oh, and he okay. was disabled. Right. And it's like twenty minutes. He, he, yeah, they weren't very far away from him, so he shot the animal. It had moved off a, a bit, but he couldn't go after it. He, so he sat down, and then they came to him, and it was within about twenty minutes. So he had them go find the animal. And the condition of that animal in the span of twenty minutes, no person in twenty minutes could have done what they did with that creature it was just basically gone the hide was removed there was very little left and what got me was that the leg that foreleg had been snapped yeah the legs were snapped you just off. can't do that and there were sasquatch yeah. tracks around the animal you could see a bloody so, bloody so, sasquatch tracks. so they knew exactly what had done it it wasn't like it was just some animal found in that condition. They knew exactly what had done it. Yeah. So again, this well, is one of those situations where I bet they didn't have a clue that Bigfoot was around. Oh, I'm sure not. Shoot the elk. Yeah. And well, we did when we were when we were at Clark's Ranch. We didn't know they were there. No, we were just going out to investigate the screams because we had no idea. Yeah. Hey, well, you said. The, the, the legs were snapped off. Like, what do you mean by that? They were snapped completely off the leg. The lower part of the legs were. Yeah, like something grabbed one part of the leg, something grabbed the other part, and just snapped it like a twig. Like you'd snap a toothpick. Perfect, clean cut. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've got pictures of it, the guy holding it. Or holding a couple yeah. of the legs. Wow. And you think about the breaking strength of a live... You know, with muscles and tendons and bone, what can do that? Nothing. No animal. Yeah, they no weren't. Person. They weren't cut. They were. They were broken off. Rip. Yeah, you can see when that. When you and say rip off, no rip broken. Off, broken. And off. here's the thing. Well, it looks just like those trees, those tree breaks that we see. Very similar, right? And similar size, wow. coincidentally. Yeah, good boy, yes. Oh, that's that's enlightening there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, when you see the more of this kind of stuff you see, it's uh it, it puts a little bit of fear in the back of your mind. Well the other thing is too is all that other experience puts that that's just a one more stepping stone into you know, what's really out there. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm telling you, I, I've done this almost 50 years now, forty, just over 49 years. And yeah. with all the stuff I've heard and seen personally, uh, I, I have no no illusions about what's out there and what they're capable of. Oh, I hear you. So when people say they want to see one, I tell them, uh, maybe you don't. Yeah. And for good reason. 
Yeah, you can't unsee it after you've seen one. Well, and you never know what kind of situation you're going to get into. As long as rule number two applies. <laughs> What's rule number two? Leaving. Leaving. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Leaving. I just added it to rule number two. That's rule number two, leaving. Rule number one is Tom Fullery. Don't ever be fooled by Tom again. <laughs> the book, the Milo book of rules. Right. I have it. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I totally, because every time I, I see or hear anything now, I put that a check mark. Possible, possible. Ah, yeah. Because right now, it's like I'm on my my missing camping research thing and it's going well right now yeah there's there's stuff out there that you you kind of scratch your head off when you see but you kind of put it in the back of your mind or put it on that list and then oftentimes not every time but and sometimes it can take many years before something will come along and, and another piece will fit to that and you say ah, right okay now this yeah. is making more sense so you know going back to the thing where where finding calories is essential for these guys there's I wonder how they their habitat for sleeping and resting I mean do are they constantly on the move pretty much yeah or I mean do they well, have they're not like know, they're not like humans they're not gonna sleep an eight hour straight amount they're well, gonna be I understand that. Yeah. I'm just saying where they hang out. Where do they bury their dead? Why don't we see the skeletons of these things when they're just dropped dead somewhere? I mean, is there some, like, kind of graveyard crew comes you by know, and picks up their crap? There are references, though. You go back to John Green's books. He's got stories in there where people have yeah, found... Yeah, I, I just bought one of his books. I, I, I bought one just so I can understand this more. Yeah, I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, skeletons have never been found, but that's not true. There was right. there were a couple a couple instances. Let me think. There was one on I want to say Warner's Ranch, in Northern California, and there were a couple of young girls, and they were out on this logging road and they found one that was partially decomposed, laying right in the road. And um, of course, you know, by the time Green learned this many years later, the carcass right. would have been gone. Uh, there was another story up on the west coast of British Columbia. There was a couple who used to go prospecting on their vacations. So they canoed into this location. When they went to leave, they found a partially decomposed Sasquatch at the edge of the lake. And they had a discussion about it. The wife wanted to take part of the creature back. Husband said, no, we don't have room. And she snuck its jawbone into one of the packs. And apparently this jawbone sat on their mantelpiece, mantel place for 14 years people would come over they could take it and it would fit completely over their face it was that large wow. and then the house yeah. burnt, the house burnt down it was lost so and there were old other stories older ones you know with articles in there where uh, specimens had been found so it's not like they haven't been found they had but you have to remember in these time periods it's only only very recently that everybody is excited and oh yeah we need to find one blah 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 but in the past, you. yeah. But in the that past, makes sense, dude. Yeah, the past, nobody cared. And then, what, no. would, you, what would you do well, with it? You why, know, why yeah. would you bring it in? Why would you tell anybody? Yeah. 
because number one, no one would believe you anyway. It kind of goes with that story. Well, a lot of this subject was nothing but uh, local interest stories until, you know, the 1950s, late 1950s anyway. Yeah. Well, that and then the big thing was the, the Patterson Gremlin, uh, you know, right. that film. Yeah. You know, that, that sparked a whole new thing. And that wasn't until 1967. So all of this is right. relatively relatively new. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking 60-some years now. But in the whole history of this thing, that's pretty recent. Yeah. Well, I know here's, here's one thing that was... Not really a, uh, a light bulb moment, but one time when Janie and I went, we went hiking, and I was in uh, Arizona, and high, not they're not hieroglyphics. What would that? The Indian paintings, or what would they call that? Indian painting, you oh, know, the native native artwork. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, it was on the side of a cave that we went oh, deep. Pe- petroglyphs. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and and we went, and it was like, wow, that looks like Bigfoot, you know. And, and it it had. I took pictures. I gotta find that 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 Sandus, but I have pictures of it where it it didn't look like any of the other pictures. Right. Yeah, you know, I've seen some. I've seen some rock artwork and uh, petroglyphs from British Columbia that you can okay. only assume were these things. Well, that see, that's where I'm going. If I did not know about it already, I would have just passed that by. Oh, sure. Right. You know, you know, and so that's where I was telling you. You know, because of all the experiences that you actually encountered mm-hmm. and 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 whizzed with. That these things are now a stepping stone for you, and now they are for me. Right. You know, I it's like what I would say. Oh, that's a cool painting or a good picture. Now it's like, huh, that could be. Right. You Listen, know. So I. I oh, yeah. right. We're just gonna say we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We're we're running out of time. So. Okay. Fellas, any last thoughts before we wrap up this uh, two-hour segment? I uh, just really enjoyed it. <clears throat> Everybody, thanks a bunch. Uh, good, good. just kind of a ad hoc, impromptu conversation. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, we, we have our schedule with guests, and our guest today, like I mentioned earlier, uh, was Chris got in sick. Tennessee, and Chris got sick. So last minute, so we sort of had to wing it. Hope everybody enjoyed it today. I did. I, I learned two new rules today. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> All right, everyone. That, yeah. Well, stay tuned for the third segment, and uh, we'll be back shortly. In Bigfoot History, near Courtenay, Vancouver Island, September 1953. Jack Twist, Vancouver, wrote that when walking along an old logging road at dusk, he saw at first what he thought was one of his friends standing on the road ahead of him. When he got closer, he could see that it was something covered in dark hair and about eight feet tall. It moved off the road into the forest. This was about 20 miles northwest of Courtenay.
Welcome. This is a five-story collection being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. The Creature from the Avalanche. What did Tony Woolridge see and photograph standing in the melting snow on a Himalayan mountainside? Was it, at last, a yeti? Woolridge himself thinks so. He told his story to David Helton, who reports herein, and showed his pictures to two experts, who deliver their contrasting judgments. BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986. When in early March of this year, Tony Woolridge first saw fresh animal tracks on the slopes of the snow on either side of him, the thought of a yeti did briefly cross his mind, but only as a funny idea. He was, of course, in the same general part of the western Himalayas where, in 1937, H.W. Tillman followed a set of large, ape-like footprints for more than a mile, and where, in 1976, Peter Boardman and Joe Tasker emerged from their tent on a morning after a night disturbed by unidentifiable low growls to discover that whatever the thing was that had kept them awake, it had apparently, and this may have been what the growling was about, scoffed 36 Mars bars, complete with wrappers, before wandering off ahead of a wake of tracks very much, like the ones Tillman had found. Other mountaineers had also had food go missing in this neighborhood, and Woolridge, who was the first person to have passed through this valley since the autumn snows, was vaguely aware of such stories. Nevertheless, if there is anything that always happens to someone else, it is an encounter with a legendary animal, and after a quick smile at the Yeti idea, Woolridge forgot it. There are lots of interesting sights to be seen in these mountains, and the last thing you need to do up here, especially if you are alone, is to fantasize. Unlike most Westerners who come to the Himalayas, Woolridge was not a trekker, or a tourist, or a climber. He was there as a charity fundraiser. In ordinary life, he is a physicist who does research and development for the CEGB in Manchester, United Kingdom, and he has been on walking and climbing trips to the Alps and the Andes, but on this occasion he was on a 200-mile sponsored solo run, for an organization called Tradecraft, which promotes trade, intermediate technology, and fair play and conditions in third-world countries, including India. He was staying mainly in the 1,800-meter-high town of Joshamath, northeast of Delhi, and not far from the Tibetan and Nepalese borders, and was ranging out from there in different directions through the high valleys, over a day or two or three days. Each day he would set himself a goal and try to run to it in time to run back either to Joshamath or to another outlying base before nightfall. It was eleven o'clock on the morning of the fifth day out when he saw the footprints. He had run from Govingat, the village north of Joshamath, to a couple of empty bungalows known as Ganjaria, and was now trying to reach the closed end of the highest valley he'd gone through so far, about 4,000 meters. 
At 3,300 meters he saw the footprints and was struck by their clarity, smiled at the idea of a yeti, and then wondered what really might have left them. I thought it was probably some sort of large langur monkey, because there were a lot of them about, lower down. Between Govindgat and Ganjaria, there were a lot of colonies of them, and I do remember reassuring myself that it didn't look like a big cat. Snow leopards are the only thing I had been told were in the area. But, of course, a person could spend a good part of his life actively searching for and never even glimpsing a snow leopard. Peter Mathiasen wrote a very good book, Snow Leopard, about his and George Schaller's Himalayan snow leopard expedition, during which, almost incidentally, they failed to get a single reliable sighting. To be afraid of an attack by a snow leopard, even granting that you could believe that such an animal would ever consider tangling with a man, would be impossible. If only because anybody who was ever killed by one would almost certainly go straight to paradise. A bear? I was under the impression that there weren't any bears around here. Anyway, there weren't any claws in the prints. He had also seen a wildlife notice earlier, the whole region is a national park, and it hadn't mentioned bears. In fact, there probably are bears in the area. Asian black bears are reckoned to range throughout the Himalayas, and brown bears are also occasionally reported. But the footprints did not look like a bear's, and that was that. They did not have paw-like symmetry. He could tell that much, even though he did not stand around for a long time gazing at them. He considered a few more possibilities, but nothing seemed quite right. From a medium distance, he took a couple of pictures. I had a long way to go to get up to where I had to get back down that day, so I didn't hang about too long. My main concern was with the instability of the snow, because it was so warm that day, and the surface was rapidly getting softer. I realized that the longer I left it, the harder work it was going to be. The next thing that happened, as he half ran, half plodded onward through the wet snow, was that a bird of prey with a six-foot wingspan came in very low and took a particular interest in him. Woolridge is not a naturalist and had no idea what kind of bird it was, although, having looked at a field guide since then, he thinks it might have been a griffin vulture. But what had begun as a fascinating close look at a large specimen of mountain avifauna gradually changed character as the bird continued to spiral down at him. I thought, does it think I'm injured or something? I was obviously going very slowly over the open slopes, and although I had an ice axe with me, I just couldn't afford to take the risk that it might harm me in some way. So finally I shouted at it, and fortunately it disappeared off to the other side of the hillside. If it seems odd that anyone, naturalist or not, could actually expect that a vulture would harm a human, they are big creatures, and so are we. And it takes an animal the size of a tiger to prey on us. Remember that Woolridge had also had a long thought about snow leopards, even though he knew how rare they are. 
and then remembered that he was all alone up here. Anything that happened to prevent him from returning on time to base, a broken bone, for example, could at the very least occasion an expensive search party, and that, at the very least, could prevent the whole reason for his Himalayan run. As for the most that could happen, that was just about anything that could be imagined. This was not unreasonable fear. It was an extremely mind-concentrating sort of responsibility. Then, a little further on, it was about noon by now, he heard a crash and what he describes as a long rumbling. My first reaction was that an awful avalanche somewhere, and then I thought, no, it can't be, because nowhere around could I see any sign of any snow movement. Maybe I was trying to rationalize it to myself. I don't know. I put it down to soldiers in the valley dynamiting for roads. He pressed on up the slope which seemed suddenly to get much steeper. It was also as the sun was shining on it, getting warmer and making Woolridge very nervous. And then, sure enough, stretching across his path was the sweep of debris of a freshly fallen avalanche. I think now, with hindsight, that this was the noise I heard. I went across the next fifty yards or so to get to another spot where the slope even now, so I could get a good view of it and try to work out where it started, what had started it, and what the risks were of something else happening. The thing that really caught my eye was this great big smooth slide in the snow, as if some pretty heavy rock had slid down it. But there was no rock. Where the rock should have been, or where signs that the rock had bounced away should have been, there was nothing except tracks leading away right from the base of the snowslide across the slope behind a little shrub and beyond it. And right behind the shrub was a shape that couldn't have been a rock. In an unpublished written account of the incident, Woolridge describes this shape as a dark, hairy creature, perhaps up to two meters in height, standing erect on two legs, it had a squarish head and long, powerfully built torso. In talking about it, he also mentions knee-length arms with brown hair on them. Edward W. Cronin, in his book, Erun, The Natural History of the World's Deepest Valley, compiles all of the remarkably consistent recent eyewitness accounts of the Yeti into this description. Its body is stocky, ape-like in shape, with a distinctly human quality to it, in contrast to that of a bear. It stands five and a half to six feet tall and is covered with short, coarse hair, reddish-brown to black in color, sometimes with white patches on the chest. The hair is the longest on the shoulders. The face is hairless and rather flat. The jaw is robust. The teeth are quite large, though fangs are not present, and the mouth is wide, the shape of the head is conical with a pointed crown. The arms are long, reaching almost to the knees. The shoulders are heavy and hunched. There is no tail. Except for the shape of the head, and it may only have looked flat because it was lowered as the animal peered down the slope, Woolridge's description is a good match for Cronin's composite, 
something that Woolridge was unaware of before he took off for a run through the Himalayas. He had never thought much about yetis, one way or the other, and, if pressed, would probably have opted for skepticism. I remember how quickly I had to revise my own beliefs. I had to go from the point where I thought, well, a lot of people have been saying there are these strange footprints and there's got to be some explanation for them, the level at which I knew about these things, to thinking, well, the Yeti must exist because the creature can't be anything else that I know of. It's not a human being, and it's not like any other animal that I've ever heard of. What else can it be? It's a tremendous feeling that having all your doubts and your opinions so shaken into line. Unlike many people who see or claim to see unrecorded by science creatures, even unlike many people who have adventured to wherever they are for the specific purpose of finding and photographing them, Woolridge happened to have both a camera with him and the presence of mind to raise it and snap the shutter. The focus was right and the lens cap was off. In fact, it was a camera with an automatic focus and a lens cap shutter lock, something that ought to be attached by handcuff to every member of the International Society of Cryptozoology. The only problem was the Yeti was standing about 150 meters away on the other side of a non-negotiable avalanche slide. And one thing that Woolrich didn't have with him was a telephoto lens. He had 35 millimeter. The sun was behind the animal. When the film was eventually developed, the image was a silhouette about two meters high. I took a couple of quick photographs because I was certain that whatever it was wasn't going to hang around for very long but it was still there. So I moved up and got as close as I safely could on the snow. I picked out a spot where some rocks were sticking out, and I was on reasonably solid ground, and I started taking some more photographs. And the longer I was there, the more I felt convinced that the animal was in no hurry at all to move off. It was remarkably stationary. It showed virtually no sign of movement. So I studied it as far as I could and took the best photographs I could, mostly from this rocky area. Then I went back down again to where I had taken the first few and took some more from there. He took a roll of color film and loaded another. The animal remained still. The only sign of movement I saw was I saw the bush vibrate on one occasion and when I moved lower down, I got the impression, no more than that, that it changed its posture and was looking around the other side of the shrub. And you get that impression, too, from the negatives. Woolridge's eyes, there being two of them with fairly high resolution, were doing a better job than the camera. I could get the three-dimensional effect... He could see the brown arms clearly, and what was most clear, I think, were the features of the head, the fact that it was so square, for one thing. One other thing that still puzzles me is why it didn't seem to be looking directly at me. It was looking down the slope. I was convinced, the more I looked at it, that it thought its best chance 
Well, I don't know how it thought it could have concealed. By instinct, maybe, in order to conceal itself, it freezes. On the other hand, maybe a snow-wise animal that has just been nearly killed in an avalanche knows how to keep another pile of snow from crashing down on it. Maybe it knows to go on to the nearest bush, hang on and stay still until the snow refreezes. Maybe it was wishing that the human over there wouldn't keep jumping around and taking pictures. Or maybe not. All speculations welcome. About 45 minutes passed. The sky began to darken, and it started to snow. Woolridge admits that all things being equal, he might have considered trying the rather dangerous crossing of the avalanche debris and continuing for a little while with his run. He hadn't reached the day's goal. Hemkund at the valley's cul-de-sac. But that would have meant recrossing the debris later, and the snow would have been even more unstable, and it also would have meant and this was the factor that went furthest towards making all things unequal. Trotting nonchalantly past a yeti, an animal that in some of the stories can fell a yak with a single blow, all in all it seemed a good time to call it a day. On the way down he saw more tracks on the slopes below, but they were distant and inaccessible, and the light was getting worse. He took five or six photos that, when eventually developed, came out black. As he passed the footprints he had seen originally, he took some close-ups, but three hours had passed and the prints were no longer distinct. After administering the monster hunter's time-worn self-kick, he descended towards Gangjaria, the village of the Pulna, and finally Joshamath. At first he thought he would spill the beans down at Pulna and tell everybody what he had seen and then come back up the next day, maybe, and see what evidence there was. But he decided against that, partly because he was concerned about the animal. If the locals, and especially the soldiers down at Joshamath, decided to set off looking for it, well, you never know what they could have done. And secondly... The weather was turning bad, so he knew that by the next day the footprints would have been snowed over, and, provided the animal hadn't been injured, it would have got well away over the call. So there wouldn't have been actually anything to see. He was pretty convinced of that. So I decided to keep the whole thing to myself, to go on and finish the run as if nothing had happened. It was very, very difficult for me because I was bursting to tell. But he kept his secret as he ran through the mountains for several more days, covered his two hundred miles, and raised two thousand three hundred pounds for tradecraft, one thousand three hundred over his goal. In fact, he more or less kept the secret for four more months. Of course, he had the film developed and took the pictures around to people who had seen or failed to see evidence of yetis, respectively. For example, John Hunt and Chris Bonington. He talked to Dr. Myra Shackley, archaeologist and longtime yeti enthusiast, and to Dr. Brian Bertram, Q. 
curator of mammals at London Zoo. He talked to other zoologists, anthropologists, and mountaineers, all of whom, he says, seemed fascinated. But he didn't go public, as it were, until he appeared with Chris Bonington on BBC One's Wild Britain in July. Four months seemed plenty of time for the Yeti to have escaped its avalanche and to have returned to that untraceable place where all the Yetis live. But mightn't the news now still set off an expedition? I am very concerned that people should think carefully about whether it's really necessary. One of the natural reactions, I think, among scientists, is to say, to be positive about identifying what it is, and in order to find out what we need to do to protect it, we've got to capture one. But it seems to me that in this technological age, we've got such a lot of ways of studying with remote cameras and image intensifiers at night, that sort of thing, I'm not at all sure that it is necessary to capture the animal, particularly one like this, which seems to have been coexisting with man for thousands of years. We don't know how many there are. They certainly can't exist in large numbers, and maybe just taking one out of the population might be enough to destabilize it. He says that he is reporting his experience now, and that he had always intended to report it at some point, so that people take stories of footprints and of other sightings more seriously, and so that the Indian government, perhaps with the help of the World Wildlife Fund, might consider this enough evidence to give the animal protection. In his written account, he ends with a quote from Tillman's book, Mount Everest, 1938. When the dust of conflict had settled, the abominable snowman survived to pursue his evasive, mysterious, terrifying existence, as unruffled as the snow he treads, and unmoved as the mountains in which he dwells, uncaught, unspecified, but not without honor. Copyright from BBC Wildlife Magazine, September 1986 issue. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. Field and Stream, January 2000. Print Pro says Bigfoot may exist. Eerily similar tracks are found miles and years apart. Police officer and forensic primate print expert Jimmy Chilcutt of Conroe, Texas, and Dr. Jeff Meldrum, an anatomy and anthropology professor at Idaho State University, share a passion. They examine the prints left by hands and feet to reveal the identity of unseen visitors. But while the testimony of fingerprint expert Chilcutt can prove a person guilty in a court of law, Meldrum's assertions that certain footprints constitute evidence of the legendary Bigfoot's existence raises eyebrows of scientist colleagues. Meldrum hopes some skeptics will change their minds after hearing what Chilcutt has to say about the footprint castings Meldrum has collected from the Pacific Northwest. The ridge detail, finger pattern, on the cast is neither man nor ape, says Chilcutt. Is it possible to have faked it? Sure, but the faker would have had 
to have an intimate knowledge of primate footprints, and that didn't exist at the time the castings were made. Chilcutt initiated the study of primate fingerprints in the mid-1990s, working on a hunch, the identifying ridge patterns, the articles, loops, and whorls, made by folds in the skin, would someday help forensic specialists catch criminals. He explains that it would be helpful if criminologists could identify the race of a person by his fingerprints. But research in that direction has been inconclusive, Chilcutt believes, because the races have interbred so much. Primates, however, have undiluted gene pools. To date, Chilcutt has more than 1,000 fingerprints of lemurs, monkeys, and apes in his computer databank. When he heard about Bigfoot castings in Meldrum's laboratory, he was intrigued, but skeptical. What I do is catch bad guys in Conroe, Texas, Chilka says. I didn't care one way or the other if Bigfoot existed. But a casting made near Walla Walla, Washington in 1984 piqued his interest. Not only did the ridge pattern run vertically along the edges of the foot, then angle across underneath the toes a pattern different from humans and apes, which have ridges running horizontally and at an angle across the footpad, respectively, but the imprints showed splits in the feet where the ridges did not realign perfectly when the skin had healed. Chilcutt got a second jolt when he found a Northern California casting made in 1967. The pattern was similar to that on the Walla Walla casting, although made from a smaller animal, For them to be fake, Chilcutt believes the same person would have had to fabricate both footprints 17 years and several hundred miles apart. That seemed unlikely to Chilcutt, especially after he tried to duplicate the casting and failed. The fingerprints expert has become a believer. I can assure you, he says, there's an animal up in the Pacific Northwest that we have never seen. Keith McCafferty, Copyright, Field and Stream Magazine. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. Mount St. Helens, Ape Cave. Ape Cave in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest went unnoticed for about 2,000 years. Then, in 1951, Larry Johnson of Amboy, Washington, was logging in the area when he discovered the entrance to the Lava Tube Cave, which was at the time almost completely blocked with vegetation and timber growth. Johnson then related the find to the Harry Reese family, and they investigated and explored what is now known as Ape Cave. Why is it called Ape Cave? Well, Harry Reese was a scoutmaster of a Boy Scout troop called the Apes, so named because of their interest in the legend of Mount St. Helens and its Native American tales of old Sasquatch. Thus the cave they explored in those years was tagged Ape Cave, after the scout troop of that day. Contrary to a published Bigfoot book, the 1924 Fred Beck story in Ape Canyon was not the motivation for the naming of the 1951 Ape Cave. The canyon story was on the other side of the Mammoth Mountain from Ape Cave. The scouts were influenced by the Native Americans and their campfire stories, which did not include Fred Beck, 
but rather focused on native encounters with what they perceived as the mountain's hairy apes in the 1950s. There are no stories to support the notion that Sasquatches ever inhabited Ape Cave. The cave itself was formed 2,000 years ago. What is now a cave was once a stream bed. An eruption from the mountain's summit filled the gully with lava, which did not harden consistently. As the outward part of the flow cooled and hardened, the inner strand kept moving out the bottom of the cave. The lava flowed for three to six months, resulting in the cave as we know it today. At 12,810 feet, it is the longest such formation in North America. Walls average 30 feet thick. The forest grew up and over the main entrance until it was discovered by Lawrence Larry Johnson in 1951. In a roundabout way, it was indeed named after the legendary Sasquatch by way of a Boy Scout troop named the Apes. According to Native American legend, those apes were the elusive Sasquatch. This is the end of story number three. Story number four. Surgeon teams with filmmaker to find Almasty. Newspaper, the Long Beach Press-Telegram. Article titled, Big Hunt for Bigfoot's Kin. Published Sunday, March 29, 1992. Associated Press. A spirited 72-year-old doctor and a filmmaker are teaming up for a summer expedition to track the Almasty, or snowman of the Caucasus, a huge, hairy beast with glowing red eyes, the hominid cousin of Yeti and Bigfoot. Dr. Jean-Marie Kaufman, a French-Russian surgeon, mountaineer, and scholar, has been on the Almasty Trail for more than two decades and has collected more than 500 accounts and a plaster-cast footprint of the forest man of the Caucasus. She traveled on horseback through the remote mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas, talking to villagers who had seen the mysterious beast. Although skeptical at first, she became convinced that the Almasty was another in an array of species that roamed the Caucasian wilds. Retiring in France on a tiny Soviet pension, she never dreamed that one day she'd have the money to mount a full-scale scientific search. But then she had not counted on Sylvan Pallax. Pallax, a documentary filmmaker, was fascinated by two articles Kaufman wrote for Archaeologia magazine. Tracking her down, he proposed finding sponsors for an expedition that he would film. The respected French paleoanthropologist Yves Copens gave the search his blessing. Pallax raised half of the needed 1.8 million. He's confident he'll find the rest. For three weeks, the telephone has been ringing off the hook, said Pallax, whose previous works have included a documentary on a Harley-Davidson meet in South Dakota and one on Calvados moonshiners. People are fascinated by the Almasty. A dozen people will leave Paris in June to be joined by a dozen of Kaufman's scientific colleagues from Moscow. They will conduct the research in the Kabardin-Balkart region of Russia, just north of Georgia. The expedition hopes to find the beast, put it to sleep, 
take blood and skin samples and a plaster cast of the face and then let it awake in freedom after putting on a band so its wanderings can be followed. Appearing like a cross between an ape and a Neanderthal, the Amisty reputedly can run up to 37 miles an hour. It is said to be omnivorous and sometimes travels with companions and babies. The last sighting of the Almasty was by a zoologist friend of Kaufman, who reported spending six minutes watching one on August 25, 1991. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. Argosy Magazine, April 1969. Wisconsin's Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, Science Editor. Argosy investigates a startling report of a dozen reliable witnesses and finds these remarkable tracks. My question was addressed to six of the men seated around the microphone, and it was deliberately somewhat vague. It was, Gentlemen, before we get down to the facts, I want each of you who were on the hunt to tell me, one at a time, what you first thought this creature was when you spotted it. Richard and Pete Vandenberg, Bob Perry, Dick Blyer, Bill Mallow, and Dick Tillock took their time in answering, but all their answers were legitimate because they gave me their first impressions first and then their efforts at rationalizing. For three of those present, it was a second encounter, which I did not discover until later. These three are local men and were hunting in the same swamp known as the Deltox Marsh in which they, in company with nine others, encountered the creature again on a deer drive on November 30th. All three spontaneously said that their first impression was one of complete incomprehension. They didn't know what it was. Bob Perry, who was up in a tree scanning the huge swamp with its stands of trees and meandering tongues of bushes and scrub, saw it first and had it under observation at the closest range and for the longest time. He said his second impression, when he had recovered from his initial surprise, was that it was a lone hunter dressed in a very silly way. Both Dick Blyer and Bill Mallow, having seen it from the ground, and much less clearly, due to the patches of bushes, could only give their rather long accounts of their first attempt at rationalization, and during this both thought it might be a bear, but, they added, they had immediately changed this to some crazy hunter or more like an ape. By the time of the deer drive, six weeks later, these three had all come to the conclusion that it was not a bear because of its very long legs and the speed and silence with which it moved which our black bear cannot do when standing upright, nor a hunter. This puzzled me, especially because the other three present, who had seen it only once on the drive, all said that their first impression had been of a bear standing upright. But when it sort of danced around and then got in behind the bushes, as Dick Tellick put it, their second thoughts also were that it was a man. When it came to third and subsequent thoughts, 
all six reached the conclusion that it was neither bear nor man, and they debated the possibilities for us around the microphone. Finally, they came up with a combined notion, approved by all present, that it was some kind of a man that behaved like an ape, and more particularly like a chimpanzee. This, of course, prompted my next and most obvious question. You mean a man wearing a monkey suit, putting on a sort of act? There was a guffaw from everybody at the table, except my traveling companion, Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, of the Royal Institute of National Sciences of Belgium, who has spent a lifetime tracking down reported but as yet uncaught animals. Joining most heartily in this explosion was Larry McEvitt, a police officer and local game warden who had actually supervised the drive. Accompanying this outburst were cries of, It would have been suicide! Somewhat taken aback, and asking what this was all about, I got the answer, You don't know the hunters who come up here in the deer season, and it's the truth. Anybody who dressed themselves up in a monkey suit and then danced around in the open in front of a line of even local hunters, giving his famous imitation of a dancing bear or a distraught escaped ape, could only be intent on suicide. Not even an escapee from a city on his first hunt would wear his wife's fur coat or a furry parka. Twelve men made a drive through this Deltox marsh, moving abreast at about twenty paces apart. The game warden was out to observe the start of the drive, just to check out the hunters and see that all was legal and in order, but he remained on one of the roads that surrounded the swamp. He did not see the creature, and he had gone elsewhere by the time the party came out at the other end of the swamp about three miles away. This swamp, some four by two miles in extent, is surrounded by farmlands dotted with numerous woods, thickets, and marshes, which are overgrown with three to four foot tall canary grass. There are two large spring-filled dew ponds, locally called fountains, in this swamp, one to the north, one to the near center. In addition to the six men already named, there were on the drive Kurt Kruger, Artie Tellock, Lester Zulheich, Don Scania, Romy Scanvi, and a visitor from Milwaukee. An interesting point is that their ages range from 12 to 55, and three of them have been in the armed forces. All saw the thing at the same time, though some closer than others, and some for a longer time. Holdan Savina and Artitelic got too dim a sight of it to comment. Shortly after entering the more open grass field center area of the swamp, the three on the left suddenly spotted something black standing in the grass, which reached only about halfway up its thighs. They didn't shoot. It was manlike. Confused, they called the line to a halt and passed the word along. The creature then began to walk to their left. Moving forward as quietly as possible, they wheeled around and got very close to it. The creature then began to retreat, but when they stopped, it stopped and when they moved back, it came toward them. It finally moved into the thickets in the direction of some woodland to the northwest. 
They tried to follow, but the brush was too thick, so they circled around as fast as they could with a view to heading it off or to be waiting for it to emerge on the road beyond, on which, incidentally, they had left their cars. There they watched for a considerable time, but it did not appear. The composite description of the creature that emerged was that of a large and powerfully built man covered with short, very dark brown or black hair, and, as invariably in descriptions of these creatures, with a lighter and hairless face and hairless palms. The head appeared smallish, also with short hair, but the neck appeared to be enormous and so short as to be almost non-existent. The shoulders were very wide and large, and the torso barrel-shaped. In a six-way discussion at our interview, some time was spent on the proportionate length of the arms, body, and legs. Analyzing this exchange from the tape, it seems that while the body seemed to be very long, this was due to the absence of any noticeable waist. All of them said that it tapered from the shoulders right to the hips. As for a description of the legs, they could only guess since the creature was standing in grass, which they estimated to be between three and four feet tall. Some at first said the legs were short, others that they were long, but this was before they decided that they should speak of their length in proportion to the body rather than in comparison to a man or an ape. Then they all agreed that they would be of about average length for a tall man, since the grass did not reach to the crotch. But it was concerning the arms that all seemed agreed, feeling that they were exceptionally long for a man. I can vouch for these young men's honesty, their sincerity and exceptional intelligence, because we gave them a pretty thorough and skillful interrogation. Bernard Huvelmans was once nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of zoology on his French TV science series. Trained zoologists can set some deadly traps for non-zoologists. This may be summarized. First, they agreed. It did not seem to be afraid. And they felt sure it had seen them from the outset. Its movements were almost leisurely, and it seemed to deliberately come out from behind the bushes several times to observe them. Altogether, it impressed them, as it had done the three previously in October as being distinctly curious and even inquisitive and rather bold in its approach to them, though duly cautious in that it retreated before them and kept at a safe distance. Of its body motions they had much to say. It walked just like a man, but slightly forward and with a sort of swinging motion of the arms. On more than one occasion it seemed deliberately to try to attract their attention by sort of jumping around. Now, all this, and a tremendous amount of further hints and details contained in our taped record, on analysis adds up to but one thing, a hominid. This means something on the human branch of the general anthropoid tree rather than on that of the apes or pongids. In view of the fact that there never have been any wild apes in North America, and that they are very valuable specimens in zoos, circuses, and laboratories that, if one got away, it would be immediately reported, and also because it is very doubtful that any known ape could survive in Wisconsin into the fall. 
This leaves us with only two alternatives. Either it was a deranged person in a monkey suit attempting suicide, or it was one of the half-dozen or so kinds of man-creatures that we call collectively ABSMs, abominable snowmen. Finally, it came as a considerable surprise to us to learn during the interview I describe above that this particular specimen, or one just like it, was seen on no less than five occasions in that immediate area last fall. Sometime in the early fall, a Mr. Freeman encountered just the same thing in an area known as the Lebanon Swamp. Perry, Flyer, and Mallow ran into it on the 19th of November. There was this drive on the 30th of November, and the very next night, a Mr. and Mrs. Stan Pencala almost ran into it on one of the nearby roads. Then, as we were concluding our interview, four young local men came in to say that some youngsters had just led them to two long trails of tracks in the fresh but slightly crusted snow, again adjacent to the Deltox Marsh. I'm afraid that this development seemed too pat. We went to see the tracks, and they displayed some very dubious features that would have been puzzling enough if they had been found on the top of the Himalayas. But by this I mean they looked more than suspiciously man-made, in that they were enormous individually, but had exactly the same stride as my own. While both sets either appeared out of deep wood into which we had not the time or means at night to follow them back to their point of origin, or started from a blacktop road and cut across open fields to another thick wood. Also, on one occasion, they stepped over a waist-high barbed wire fence without messing the snow or leaving any hairs. But perhaps we went to look at these tracks in too skeptical a mood, and our appraisal may have been prejudiced. Copyright, Argosy Magazine, Ivan Sanderson. Sanderson, Ivan Terrence, 1911-1973. Sanderson received degrees with honors in geology, zoology, and botany, and headed six expeditions in all parts of the world for such groups as the British Museum, Cambridge, and London Universities, the Linnaean Societies of London, and the Chicago Natural History Museum. He was the author of many books. One, Animal Treasures, was a book of the month selection in 1937. Others include The Hairy Primitives of Ancient Europe, 1967, Caribbean Treasure, Animals Nobody Knows, Living Treasure, Animal Tales, How to Know American Mammals, The Monkey Kingdom, and Living Mammals of the World. The Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, written in 1961, and countless articles for various publications and Argosy magazine, where he was science editor. This concludes the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning 
and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Sasquatch are here, says Outdoorsman, by Bernice Tick, Prince George Citizen Staff, August 15, 2005. A Prince George man whose greatest passion has been hunting for big game admits he is hooked on proving the existence of Sasquatch. Leo Selzer, who has spent 41 years hunting in the bush around Prince George in Canada, is convinced the elusive creatures are around, and he spends as much time as he can in the bush area where he believes they live. He says he's had one pretty clear sighting, and several occasions when he's convinced he was communicating with his furry friends. In the mid-1980s, when Selzer was moose hunting in Greg Creek area west of the city, he did his loud moose calls that bring in the bulls during rutting season. After a few calls, I heard a response, like someone banging on a tree about a kilometer away. I would call, then right away, bang, bang. And a small black bear appeared, wandering towards the banging sounds. The bear stopped and stood up on its hind legs, looking towards a tall fir tree. And then, all of a sudden, it hightailed it in the opposite direction toward me, veered off, and went down over the ridge. It was then that Selzer saw a tall, dark-colored creature step out from the cover of the fir tree into the open, and then quickly stepped behind the tree and was gone, said Selzer, noting that logged-off areas have little human activity. In 2000, Selzer was again hunting at Greg Creek when, about 400 meters, he spotted what he first thought was a large bear standing on its hind legs watching the hunters. It was standing next to a large, broken-off fir tree and was about the same dark color, maybe grayish around its shoulders and on its chest. Thinking it could be a grizzly, I kept a close eye on it, watching it shift its weight from one leg to the other a couple of times for about a half an hour. All of a sudden, it was gone. But later... I realized a bear would never stand on its hind legs for that long without getting down and back up again, said Selzer. After studying that area closely, he has concluded the creatures leave landmarks and directional signs by piling trees into X marks behind closely knit trees and bending and shaping spindly trees into arches and shaped pointers carefully threaded through willow tops. He believes Sasquatch eat bark from the trees like aspens and has seen markings showing large fingernails and teeth were used to remove the bark. He has also seen large footprints, but hasn't been fortunate to be able to photograph them fresh or complete. One footprint going up a grade was pretty clear, about 13 to 14 inches long, 8 inches wide at the heel and about six inches wide at the top of the ball of the foot. There were indications of possible toe impressions about one to three inches beyond the ball of the foot. In 1994, on the Hoodoo Lakes Road, he could hear three individual voices give out a holler or two, which was responded to by jabbering type of language. I thought it must be some drunken people back there on a bush road or something, but I later found out there is no road or clearing in that area. 
In mid-June, Selzer came across an area in the Greg Creek, about 300 to 400 yards long, containing a series of blinds and shelters and teepee-like frameworks he believes were built by a Sasquatch. The blinds were waist to shoulder height with logs and trees pushed together to form a lean-to-like structure. The frameworks, up to 50 feet high, are made with long spindly trees intricately intertwined to form a structure, said Selzer. Brian Vike in Houston, who reports on unidentified flying objects and such matters, has received reports from residents about Sasquatch sightings in the Buck Flats area. Two Houston women driving up Buck Flats Road were startled recently when a large animal walked upright across the road in front of their vehicle. The animal, described much like a Sasquatch, made long strides into the forest, but did not turn around to look back at the women. He said a camping party in Silverhorn Lake reported hearing chilling screams in the night coming from around the lake, which cannot be associated with the known animals in the region. One other sighting was reported on the Maurice River Road when two people fishing witnessed a large two-legged animal on the opposite bank of a river walk slowly into the forest and disappear, said Vike. American William Dranginus said he saw a Bigfoot once, hairy, seven feet tall, and sprinting through the woods of Virginia. The 12-second sighting changed the life of Dranginus, who outfitted a 24-foot mobile veterinary clinic as a Bigfoot primate research lab. Equipped with scopes, radios, and a night sight camera that can detect an animal in the dark at 800 yards away, he heads out at least two weekends a month but still no second sighting for Dranginus, who would like to push legislation to protect the creatures. Do not shoot it, said Selzer. They mean no harm, but they are curious and incredibly intelligent beings. Selzer's latest reported sighting on July 20th came from a visiting couple from Saskatoon. They told Selzer that while driving Highway 16 east at about 8 p.m. near Tabor Mountain, they saw what they first thought was a large man crossing the highway. Describing the creature was about seven and a half feet tall, covered with hair, thick-barreled shoulders, and narrow waist, they said it crossed the road about 100 yards ahead of them in about three steps. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. Old Bigfoot in Idaho adds color to legend. By Betty Allen for the Humboldt Times, 1959. Another article by Betty Allen. This one is an interesting story in several ways and has naturally been received with whoops of joy by the skeptics. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is from the Humboldt Times, dated January 3rd, 1959, and reads, Mrs. Alvin Bortles of Boise, Idaho, discussed an account of a Bigfoot who lived prior to 1868 in the wilderness of Idaho. The mother of Kenneth Bortles, vice principal of the Hoopa Valley High School, Mrs. Bortles said that mysterious tracks of a tremendous size and human shape stirred the residents of Idaho in the early days. 
just as with Bigfoot tracks of Northern California's Bluff Creek area. Some believed they were genuine, others saw them as a clever hoax. Bigfoot lived in the remote wilderness of Reynolds Canyon, now known as Reynolds Creek. A thousand dollars was offered for him, dead or alive. Here the likeness to the local Bigfoot ended, for the giant monster, as he was called in Idaho, was a killer. The full extent of the depredations of Bigfoot were never known, nor the many robberies and murders attributed to him, which he probably did not commit. The sometimes wanton killings that were the work of almost superhuman strength, both with stock and humans, brought about his downfall. A thousand dollars was offered for Bigfoot, dead or alive. John Wheeler, a former army man, set out to collect the reward. In the year 1868, he came upon Bigfoot and shot him 16 times. Both legs and one arm were broken before he fell to the ground, and as he lay there, Bigfoot asked for a drink of water, and because of his great fear, Wheeler shot him, breaking his other arm before giving the drink to the creature. Before he died, he told Wheeler that his real name was Star Wilkerson, and he had been born in the Cherokee nation of a white father. His mother was part Cherokee and part Negro. Even as a very small boy, everyone had called him Bigfoot and made fun of him. At age 19, the white girl he loved jilted him for another. Gathering a small band of men about him, he killed him at the time for the sheer love of the killing. Later, Wilkerson killed the girl that he loved, too. The foot length of this great giant of a man was seventeen and a half inches and eighteen inches around the ball of the foot. His height was six feet nine inches, with a chest measurement of fifty-nine inches, and his weight was estimated at three hundred pounds. He was all bone and sinew, no surplus flesh, he was known to have traveled as far as 60 or 75 miles in a 24-hour period. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is detailed further in Ron Marlowe's Indian Tales of Bigfoot, which was first printed in the Independent Enterprise newspaper, Payette, Idaho, Wednesday, March 21st, 2001, http colon forward slash forward slash payettecounty.info forward slash marlow forward slash bigfoot dot html Adelaide Hawes gives an account of Star Wilkerson or Bigfoot in her book The Valley of the Tall Grass written in 1950 Another brutal story from Idaho was the one told by President Teddy Roosevelt The Bauman Story this is the end of story number two. Story number three. Screams and footprints found in Talladega National Forest, Cleburne County, Alabama. 1994. About 14 years ago, my wife and I were at a lake in the middle of the Talladega National Forest in Alabama. The lake was Sweetwater Lake. From I-20, you get off at the Heflin exit and go through Heflin and get on Highway 78. 
you will see signs directing you to Pine Glen, a camping area. The Coleman Lake soon after this point. The roads are dirt roads, but follow the signs to Pine Glen, and about three miles up the road on the left you will see a sign for Sweetwater Lake. This road will go down about half a mile to the lake. It was September in 1994. We were fishing in a small boat at the end of a slough early in the morning. We were the only ones on the lake. I think it was a Wednesday, and, well, we were all alone. We heard something scream. It started out as a howl and turned into a long, high-pitched scream, and it was so loud it echoed through the mountains. It made the hair on the back of our neck stand up. But that is not all. About a year before that, my stepfather and I were hiking around the same lake. We liked to fish at a spillway on the back side of the lake, and about a half a mile into the hike we crossed a fire break about twenty feet wide. Now, keep in mind that we are a pretty good way back in the woods. We have crossed rocks, thorns, briars, and all kinds of rough road. And right there across the dried mud in the fire break is a set of footprints dried into the mud. They were not huge, they were about the size of a full-grown man, but they did look human, and I just couldn't understand why a man would be this far back in the woods without shoes on. And over the years, there is one thing I have thought about. A Bigfoot would have to grow up, so maybe it was a young Bigfoot. I once worked with a man in Alabama that afterwards when we became friends and he told me and his whole family were picking huckleberries at Sweetwater Lake. The huckleberries grow wild all over the area. He and his wife and two children were picking away when they all heard something in the trees. They all turned around to see a hairy man standing there. He said it was a little taller than a man, and as soon as it saw them, it ran off into the woods. Well, it scared them so bad that they left. This is the end of story number three. Story number four. The White Mountain Apache Nation of Eastern Arizona. Apaches go public with Bigfoot sightings. They cannot be ignored any longer. By Scott Davis. Tucson, Arizona, September 2nd, 2006. Footprints in the mud. Tufts of hair on a fence. Ear-piercing screeches in the night. These are only fragments of the stories now coming from the White Mountains in eastern Arizona. For years, the White Mountain Apache Nation has kept the secret within tribal boundaries. We're not prone to easily talk to outsiders, said spokeswoman Colette Altaha. But there have been more sightings than ever before. It cannot be ignored any longer. It is a creature the world knows as Bigfoot. No one's had a negative encounter with it, said Marjorie Grimes, who lives in Whitewater, the primary town on the reservation. Grimes is one of many who claim to have seen the creature over the last 25 years. Her first sighting was in 1982. Her most recent was in the summer of 2004, driving home from the town of Sibiquiu. She becomes 
more animated as the memory comes forth. It was all black, and it was tall. The way it walked, it was taking big strides. I put on the brakes and raced back and looked between the two trees where it was, and it was gone. Grime's son, Francis, has a story. Their neighbor, Cecil Hendricks, has a story. Even police officers have had strange encounters. Officer Catherine Montoya has seen it twice. On a recent Monday night, dozens of people called into the tribe's radio station, KNNB, to talk about what they'd seen. Others came in person. The newsroom was there. So was Tom Biscardi and a crew from Searching for Bigfoot, Inc., the California-based team, has crisscrossed the country pursuing reports of the mythic animal. New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas, and Arizona have been hot spots this year. Biscardi said the Apache land is an untapped resource for investigators. There are way too many reports coming out of there of seeing the creature. My God, people better start listening to and coming to this thing because it's happening. His ultimate goal is to capture a Bigfoot creature, study it for 90 days, and return it to the wild. Two nights in a row, Biscardi and crew strapped motion-activated cameras with night-vision lenses onto trees in the nearby woods. They set up listening devices and made noises which, he claims, lure the creatures into view. All their efforts yielded only one result. No mystery beast, no mystery screams. Instead, there is relief. Colette Altaha said the people on the reservation are beginning to support the decision to go public because of people doubting them before they never came forward. But now, with the help of Tom Biscardi and his team, they've come out here and our people are beginning to open up. Indeed, the decision to let 3TV report this story was a controversial one. On the radio program, one Apache caller said tribal elders were uncomfortable letting the legend be known. Still, Altaha believes it is the right thing to do. I've heard stories from a while back about sightings. I'm not easily persuaded, but with so many of the people coming forward and telling us their stories, there might be something out there that actually exists. Tribal Police Lieutenant Ray Burnett puts it in terms of public safety. A couple of times they've seen this creature looking through the windows. They're scared when they call. As in all alleged sightings of a Bigfoot creature, tangible evidence is scarce. The Patterson film from 1967 is the most often seen video. It shows a tall, hairy figure striding through the woods of the Pacific Northwest. For nearly 40 years, this film's authenticity has been debated. It has never been discredited. In the White Mountains last year, investigators found footprints, several tufts of hair and other material at the scene of a sighting. Tribal police made plaster casts from the prints and sent hair and plant samples to the Department of Public Safety for analysis in its state-of-the-art crime lab. Test results showed the hair was not human, but animal in origin. 
further testing to determine what kind of animal was not done. The Arizona Game and Fish Department does not investigate Bigfoot sightings. Neither does the State Veterinarian's Office, a division of Arizona Department of Health Services. Perhaps the only organizations that take such reports seriously are Bigfoot hunters such as Viscardi or the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. The field is not well organized and often manned by amateurs with little to no scientific background. Biscardi himself has come under fire in the past for promoting an alleged find that later turned out to be a hoax. He is more careful these days and promises a huge revelation yet to come. It will be something even more fantastic than the hundreds of reports of the Apache Bigfoot. Back on the reservation, Lieutenant Burnett wants outsiders to realize that the department takes these calls seriously, and so should you. The calls we're getting from people, they weren't hallucinating. They weren't drunks. They weren't people that we know can make hoax calls. They're from real citizens of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Nearest to Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona, November 2007. Scream terrifies ranchers. Hello, I'm writing to your website because of some strange goings-on about the place I own out here in Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona. We have the remnants of what used to be a working ranch from years ago. Some livestock left from those days. A few horses, a few Brahma, a couple of goats out there, and a longhorn I won in a bar fight in Mexico. Down in Limestone County, Texas, and, well, recently we think we have a Bigfoot around. We used to winter horses for people around these parts, who were snowbirds, but no more because of the mystery disappearances that happen here. In fact, lots of mysterious things like that happen around the place, especially as fall nears and the weather cools, like September, October, November. Nothing happens in summer out here. One notable incident was the disappearance of one of my best dogs, part pit bull, shepherd mix. He weren't afraid of anything and was a great watchdog for the lower pasture. He guarded the grazing stock and two sheep we used to have, and the goats from local mountain lions and bobcats. Now you may say the dog wandered off, but he was ten years old and never left sight of the main house. He was a devoted dog. Some have said a bear came in from the forest at night and took him, but my middle son found him exactly fourteen feet up in the crotch of a pinion tree, with his neck snapped, no teeth marks found, no bear claw marks, no mountain lion tears, just a broken neck and tossed up into that tree, or if not tossed, someone must have put the dog's body up in that pinion, which my son had trouble reaching. We all tried to explain that one. Now on to the sheep. I bartered with a half-breed for a ram and you, and had them down in the grazing pasture along with the stock, 
horses, goats, and such. We only had them a short while, and they disappeared. For a while we thought the previous owner snuck back here, loaded up the two, and carried them off, but my wife ran into the fellow in the hardware store in town and talked to him about the disappearance. He came home that day with my wife, and together we went out looking for sign. We found nothing that day, and I don't believe he had anything to do with the sheep disappearance. He told me a far-out story that got me to thinking, though, which is why I looked up Bigfoot on the Internet. Anyway, he told me of a place up in Sierra Prieta, Ponderosa Forest, where this uh, Yavapai Indian woman ran her small flock of sheep in the company of young cousin, a blue merle coolie and a border collie, I think, that kept her flock together at night, fending off attacks by mountain lions and bobcats, sometimes wolverines. Well, this one season the woman and her cousin were bringing the flock down off a mountain grazing. It was late October, and snows were expected. She said she was not feeling well, and laid down in a grassy meadow to rest, but woke up when she heard the sheep bleating, her cousin yelling, and the dogs loudly were onto something. Well, the woman sheepherder said that she got to her feet in time to see her two dogs biting at the heels of a big, hairy man. So Yoko, as he ambled off, escaping with a big U under his arm, the hairy man tried to fend off the biting dogs, kicked the one coolie dog all to hell. Well, this might be what befell my dog. She called off the dogs and watched the hairy man disappear into the pine trees with its prize. He explained the hairy man to her was what we called Bigfoot or Sasquatch. She only told the story once to an elder, and she won't speak of it any more but he mentioned they came down from the north in winter. Hearing the sheep herder's story, putting two and two together, well, my sons, the half-breed, and I pretty much decided that we must have a rogue Bigfoot living somewhere near the property. I don't mind that so much, and we don't mind sharing some of the fruit off our trees with them, but stealing a man's stock is another thing. I don't expect to put up with that. After reading up on your website, my boys and I, along with the other dogs, packed a rifle in the scabbard and rode out recently of a morning during Thanksgiving week and covered the whole western stretch of the property line looking for sign. You would laugh. We looked like a posse with a B-Western movie. Well, we worked the edge of the tree line for about two hours looking for a trail. We found one that led deep into the forest, a section none of us had ridden before. We worked the horses through there into and around thick brush. Soon we came to a stream and stopped to gather our bearings and water the horses. Dismounting, I thought I heard someone cough. I asked, and nobody heard it but me. My horse jerked up, snorted, and became uneasy. Sensing something none of us could see, the other mounts followed. All of us were focusing on keeping the horses under control as they danced about, bucking, kicking, and snorting. My sons thought mountain lion. 
but I wasn't sure. We stood together there by the stream, listening, calming the horses, when the dogs started looking towards this thicket of tangled brush. Then the barking started in earnest, and they took off. Still, we couldn't see anything, but by now we all expected the dogs to tree a mountain lion. We couldn't follow. The brush was too thick, but the dog noise seemed to end about twenty yards into the thick brush and brambles. We kept calling and calling, and finally the dogs returned, and then took off again. Pretty soon the dogs returned, with tongues hanging out, breathing heavy. We leashed the dogs up and took them and led the horses back down to the stream. The dogs settled down some, but the horses didn't, and as we were making an effort to saddle up again, that is when it happened. There came this howl that lengthened into a scream that at first sounded like a Brahma fart, low guttural and drug out, ending up into a high-pitched drone like a woman screaming bloody murder. My body reacted with a chill and goosebumps, mainly because the scream was coming from very close, somewheres in that thicket of brambles where the dogs had been. The scream was long and kind of dragged out, the kind of noise that gets your attention real fast. The half-breed yelled, So Coco! So Yoko! Bigfoot, as he pulled the rifle out of the scabbard, by now, the horses were almost impossible to control. Then it got quiet. Not a sound. No birds, no crickets, no nothing. Everything was very still except for the horses. The dogs were by now cowering between my legs and their ears pricked towards the thicket. Then in the distance we heard another scream. It must have come from across the next valley. Now we're figuring there's a fixing to be two of these Bigfoot. I felt fear for the first time. The dogs started whining. My grown boys hurried and saddled up. We followed and took off down the trail, headed at a full gallop all the way home a good hour later. Ain't never heard nothing like that vocalization before, and I've heard plenty coyote, plenty wolves, elk's bugle, but never nothing like that before, and uh, it weren't no mountain lion scream. It was four times as powerful. If that was a warning from Bigfoot, <laughs> we got the message. This is the end of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.